0: This episode of The Dig is brought to you by our listeners who support us at Patreon.com and by The New Press, which has loads of great titles, perfect for Dig listeners like you. One that you might like is War Made Invisible, How America Hides the Toll of Its Military Machine by Norman Solomon. From Iraq through Afghanistan and Syria and on to little-known deployments in a range of countries around the globe, the United States has been at perpetual war for at least the past two decades. 9-11 and the war in Afghanistan set into motion a hugely consequential shift in America's foreign policy, a constant state of war that is almost entirely invisible to the American public. War made invisible by the journalist and political analyst Norman Solomon exposes how this happened and what its consequences are, from military and civilian casualties to drained resources at home, necessary, timely, and unflinching. War Made Invisible by Norman Solomon is available now from the New Press. Order your copy wherever books are sold. Welcome to The Dig, a podcast from Jacobin Magazine. My name is Daniel Denver, and I'm broadcasting from Providence, Rhode Island. Behold, a new American industrial policy— Behold, Bidenomics, the Inflation Reduction Act, the Infrastructure Investment and Jobs Act, and the Chips and Science Act. The proclaimed goals of Bidenomics are to speed a green energy transition to confront climate change, revive American manufacturing and union density, and check China's economic and military power. President Biden recently described this economic agenda as a, quote, fundamental break from the economic theory that has failed America's middle class for decades now, trickle-down economics. National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan criticized, quote, a set of ideas that champion tax-cutting and deregulation, privatization over public action, and trade liberalization as an end in itself, synthesized in the belief, quote, That markets always allocate capital productively and efficiently. The Biden administration, in other words, has been forthrightly repudiating neoliberalism, at least on the level of rhetoric. Reviving working class power and confronting climate change are, of course, critical goals, but there is a lot of debate on the left as to whether Bidenomics will help accomplish them and as to whether. Or to what degree, this is indeed a new political economic paradigm that makes a sharp break with neoliberalism. There's also serious concern over the way that this new industrial policy is so deeply wrapped up in a new Cold War with China, an attempt to not only check China's geopolitical ambitions, but their economic development as well. And lastly, there's the big question of where this leaves the entirety of the global south. Whatever's going on, a remarkably new landscape for political and economic struggle is taking shape, and it's critical that we understand it. Today's episode defines and debates biodynamics with Daniela Gabor, Ted Furtick, and Tim Sahai. Before we get rolling, whether you're a graduate student, a letter carrier, a union organizer, or a librarian or whatever else you are up to, where else Aside from the dig, can you get this sort of in-depth critical analysis of everything pumped into your earbuds or car speaker? I love meeting dig listeners because all of you, or I mean most, the vast majority of you, whatever, I haven't met all of you. You're so smart, interesting, engaged in incredibly important work to change this world all over the world. In the U.S., U.K., Mexico, India, Brazil, all over the place. I also really appreciate that listeners just like you make this podcast possible by making a monthly contribution at patreon.com slash thedig. This is overwhelmingly a listener-supported operation, and it's your donations that make it possible for us to put out every episode with no paywall, free, so that everyone can listen, regardless of your ability to pay. If you can afford to pay and you haven't yet done so, Please do pay up now, put an end to free riding. Contribute at Patreon.com/TheDig. Also, if you do so, you get our newsletter in your email inbox. It's a really great newsletter. For donations of ten dollars or more a month, you will get a book or books in the mail, a dig tote bag or a dig mug. Listeners outside the U.S. can receive eBooks instead. That's slash the thedig Please make my day. Contribute to this podcast's long-term viability. Hit pause. Click now to contribute. A reminder that in July and August, we are on summer schedule, which will mean roughly one to two fewer digs a month. If you think you've run out of digs, you probably have not run out of digs. Peruse our vast archives at thedigradio.com. Okay, here's Daniela Gabor, Ted Furtick, and Tim Sahai. Daniela Gabor is professor of economics and microfinance at University of the West of England, Bristol. She studies development, money, and debt through a critical microfinance lens. Ted Furtick is a historian and senior strategist for policy and research at the Working Families Party. All opinions expressed are his own. Tim Sahai is the co-editor of The Poly Crisis, a publication in partnership with Phenomenal World, focusing on the domestic and international political economy of climate. Daniela Gabor, Ted Furtick, and Tim Sahai. Welcome to The Dig.
1: Hello.
2: Great to be here. Hi, thanks for having us.
0: Let's start with Bidenomics. It was a term, I think, first coined by outside observers, but now very much embraced by the Biden administration. What is Bidenomics and what does it have to do with industrial policy?
3: So at least three aspects to it that we could talk about, I think. Uh, and, and speaking here, probably from the perspective of the administration itself and the authors of Bidenomic, not that I'm one of them, but you know, what they would say. Um, so I think there's there's a distributional aspect to it. they like to talk a lot about building the economy from the bottom up and the middle out, as opposed to the top down, a sort of explicit uh, rejection of Trickle down as a theory of economic life and of governing a capitalist economy. Um, There's a lot about sectoral aspects of the economy. uh, And I think that's the real industrial policy dimension. And there's a a real emphasis. It's maybe the third most emphasized of the three uh, around questions of place. Uh, And so they are not indifferent to where things are made. And that is where in a global sense, but also where uh, in a domestic sense uh so with a lot of concern for communities that bore the brunt of deindustrialization so those are three attributes or three uh, uh considerations that i think have gone into the making of Bidenomics. and then obviously we can talk a lot about the particular components of it the particular mechanisms um that that are being used to try to achieve each of those goals
2: yes yeah, so um Bidenomics is principally a new legislative and macroeconomic policy mix by Democratic Party elites to contain the threat of Trumpism. It's, it's their answer to the question social Democrats ask the world over, why can't the center hold? So their diagnosis is that economic and political polarization was created by the winner-takes-all sort of low-investment, low-growth, neoliberal policy mix. And that mix left people behind the gap between those without college degrees and those with college degrees widened. That's the class component. And it left regions behind. So the gap between super zips and suburban rural areas also widened, and that created political instability. So they now want to reverse these trends actively by pursuing um, you know, legislative investment-based agenda to restore broad-based growth. So when they re- regained con- uh, control of Congress, uh, they pursued, you know, what's been called the big fiscal program to put money into people's pockets and increase the sum of public and private investment in the country. Uh, Bidenomics also has this macroeconomic component of, of running a hot labor market with the Fed targeting full employment and, you know, risking inflation going above the 2% target. And together, these things created a high pressure economy um, that creates, has created uh, uh, upward mobility for people at the back of the labor queue. And that all those gaps between black and white unemployment rates and, and wage growth for those without college degrees and with college degrees has narrowed dramatically. And, you know, and then the question of how do you how did they actually do this? How do you design these spending packages with these goals in mind? Once you have one governing power, which the Democrats did, Um, In in, in 2020, the Democratic Congress then passed a series of bills that uses policy tools that explicitly directs dollars to reverse those class, place, and race inequalities. And what are these policy provisions? They are uh, Buy American, Make in America requirements. They are subsidies for manufacturers. They are federal loan guarantees for, for green projects these kind of place-based incentives, and also a, a whole, a, a large amount of public R&D to, to boost future growth. It, it also includes plugging, you know, the terribly patchy welfare system with earned income tax credits, with unemployment insurance, SNAP expansion, etc. And all of this has been sort of paired with pro-labor provisions to increase union power and union density. And when you know, when these spending packages have been designed, they've been designed to preferentially create jobs for non-college educated people. So then biodynamics has this question of, you know, how do you actually pay for it? Do you tax? Do you borrow? And there they've kind of come down on progressive tax the rich packages and closing of tax loopholes, um, you know, that Fortune 500 companies have, have exploited. And this component of biodynamics should not be forgotten the different factions of the Democratic Party, you know, the Wall Street and Silicon Valley friendly centrists and and the progressive factions, they've had a real slugfest in Congress over raising revenue. And that slugfest has reduced the size of all of these spending packages and left behind whole swathes of issue areas. Childcare, pre-K, schools, public housing, public transit. So biodynamics has been hugely contested And shaped by those thin congressional majorities that it was trying uh, to fix.
0: That legislation passed with the trifecta. There were three key legislative aspects to Bidenomics, the Infrastructure Act of 2021, and then the CHIPS and Inflation Reduction Act, or IRA, which were both passed in 2022. Tim and Ted, what, what does this bundle of legislation do from, from a bird's eye view? Because we'll get into a lot of detail later. What does it do to expand productive capacity in particular in, in particular sectors and, and specifically, specifically to drive the green energy transition? And then how do the three pieces of legislation fit together if they if they indeed do? Lachlan Carey and June Okita Shepherd argue that that chips is the brain, infrastructure is the backbone. And the IRA is the engine. Is it? Is it really all that coherent? And and then we'll move on to Daniela's critique.
2: I, I mean, I I think that is that is a good metaphor. <laughs> I don't think it was particularly coherent in in setting together and splitting up the bills in this way. Was sort of active decisions that the Biden White House and um, uh, Senator Schumer and Pelosi in the House had to actively make about exactly what goes into each bill, and that was a continuous negotiation. Uh, with a lot of scrambling, but 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 I think like the 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 coherence of it is is right. Like calling the, Ch- the chips and science act the brains of the operation kind of makes sense because it is about improving research and development and pouring money into the entire alphabet soup of American science, technology, medicine, biotech, all of the agencies um, that do R and D got money, and again, those agencies have research institutes. National Institutes of Health, et cetera, spread across the country. They're not just located in um, the high-tech clusters around Cambridge, Massachusetts, around uh, uh, Silicon Valley. They are really spread around the country, and therefore they would help reverse polarization by bringing innovation and productivity to other clusters across the country. So, okay, so that's kind of like the brains of the operation. And then the Infrastructure, the Investment and Jobs Act, is the backbone in the sense that it is about creating the grid for example so it has you know about 60 or 70 billion dollars to to help modernize the grid which has fallen into a state of disrepair and cannot take on the huge amount of renewable um, energy that we need to install um, and and it is also about the backbone of the digital ecosystem so it's about the the broadband bringing bringing broadband to the masses in particular rural broadband which were again connecting left behind communities uh, into the modern sort of information age um, and and enabling sort of uh, skilled work to happen in di- skilled digital work to happen in, in in places that currently don't have broadband so between the broadband and the the grid it is the backbone. Um, of the operation. But, you know, the backbone doesn't really work without the IRA engine, which is this enormous artillery of public finance, of loans and grants and tax credits that actually build out this renewable energy system and is the driver of manufacturing growth. And so in that sense, these three pieces sort of fit together. Legislatively speaking, you know, they they were split up. Uh, progressives in the U.S. Congress did not want them to be sp- split up because then they would lose leverage, and they had sort of characteristically that the, the Chips and Science Act is bipartisan, the infrastructure, the IIJA Act, the in- Investment and Jobs Act is also bipartisan. So those are things the Democratic Party and, Repo- and at least ten Republican senators could agree on. And then the IRA is the only sort of partisan bill; it's the only Democrats-only bill. Um, and that allows for a much broader set of social and economic objectives to be put into that bill. So, so they, they have different logics, different political logics of putting them together.
3: Just to add a couple of things. So, one is that I do think that it's worth, uh, and certainly the Biden uh, sort of spokespeople would say that the American Rescue Plan, uh, so the the bill that was passed, ARPA, right, uh, on pure party line vote in March twenty twenty one counts as among as the fourth of the Bidenomics bills. And that one speaks to some of the things that have been perhaps less emphasized in recent debates. But um, the idea of running the economy hot, right, of just using straight up fiscal uh, power to juice aggregate demand, uh, that was certainly an element of the thinking behind ARPA, as well as, um, as some of the more sort of welfarist components of at least what Bidenomics aspired to be. And probably we'll talk later on about what was shorn from what ultimately became the IRA. But, um, you know, I think famously things like the child tax credit were uh, a, a, key port, a key part of ARPA. And that was some Democrats and not even necessarily the most left wing Democrats trying to seize the opportunity of, of a moment where some kind of welfare spending seemed to command a pretty broad ascent to, to engineer some structural changes to the U.S. welfare state. But the other thing I wanted to just add to what Tim says, and hopefully this can uh, help frame some of the broader discussion, is that I, I think that part of the coherence of the the bills that you mentioned can be found in understanding the joint set of problems uh, that they're uh, meant to address. Um, you know, and in the, the talk that Tim and I gave a couple of months ago, we we laid it out as a sort of triangle in terms of uh, the question of the what China's rise means for the United States, means for the U.S. economy, and means for U.S so-called global leadership, uh, the question of the U.S. political system and the sort of intertwined questions of uh, inequality, populism, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and then lastly, climate, right? And then all of these three terms intersect uh, and interact in some really interesting and important ways. But all three of those bills, and not in a one, one way, I think each of them uh, contains pieces that are addressed to one or several of those of those sort of desiderata, but That's the challenge. And I do think the coherence can be found uh, in the fact that one way or another, it adds up to a coherent theory of how you tackle those those three interconnected uh, questions.
0: Daniela, you have argued and you've really generated, at least on Twitter, an entire discourse around this argument. You've argued that these measures are fundamentally flawed and that they prioritize a narrow form of government intervention in the form of de-risking. Private investment. What is de-risking? In what way do do these legislation these pieces of legislation de-risk? And why why does that fail to get us to where we need to be in terms of reaching zero emissions and other related goals that Bidenomics purports to address, like goals like increasing union density and and raising worker wages? Uh,
1: thank you. Yes. Um, let me take a step back from de risking and and. Spell out how I think about Bidenomics as somebody who's an, an, a close observer, but from the outside of the U.S. domestic politics process. And I think about it in with a, in a two-step fashion, right? First, what does it displace? And there, I agree with Tim and Ted that it does indeed displace trickle-down economics. It does displace a, a lack of political willingness to engage with questions of climate in 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 the U.S. It displaces a lack of attention to questions of of, uh, employment and of workers' rights. But then my second step is to think through what does it put in place? And that's where I think we have some disagreements or we've had some disagreements with both team and TED and with a large uh, part of the U.S. Uh, progressive movement around uh, Bidenomics, because I think what it puts in place is not as radical as it sounds. And I'm I'm describing, so what I, I want to think about uh, in answering this question is what kind of state capital relationship does Bidenomics put in place when it brings the state back? OK, so if we agree the state is back indeed, then we have to think, OK, what, 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 kind of relationship does it put in place? And that relationship I describe as de-risking. Not It's not a term that I came up with. It's a term that has been used by uh, particularly by private finance to conceptualize the role of the state in mobilizing private capital for the energy transition in the global south. This is Deutsche Bank in 2011 and uh, kind of a longer pedigree. So what The risking, to me, means a a relationship between state and capital that is still market-based, that puts capital in the driving seat, and that ultimately is a consequence and and is constrained by a specific set of macrofinancial Uh, constraints that we uh, operate under. And those two macrofinancial constraints, I'm sure you will get to them, have to do with the fact that we still live in financial capitalism, and we still live under a architecture of macroeconomic policymaking that puts an independent central bank at the helm of macroeconomic policymaking and subordinates to some extent, although in the US there is now a, a more interesting relationship, but it subordinates fiscal policy to the needs of the, or the specific priorities of inflation Targeting now, why is this problematic? What is the general lo- logic of the risking that I think I would like, well, will hopefully unpack uh, in broader terms? Uh, so, the risking is a, is about mobilizing private investment. Is to use it, put it in the words of the Biden administration. Um, Biden administration is about crowding in private investment, not replacing it and the techniques of crowding in basically amount uh, in my uh, view and having looked through the most of, most of the details of the US inflation reduction act this is very different and this is where i also have some disagreements with ted and tim around bundling the chips act and the ira act together i think there are very different kinds of state uh, relationship with capital in the two but the logic is you basically bribe private capital into the kind of public policy priorities that you can you do not think that you can achieve for reasons that have to do with macro-financial constraints or reasons, reasons that have to do with the domestic political constraints, which I, I think are quite binding in the US. So uh, that's that's my sort of broad, overarching view. The risking is a word or is a, is a conceptual lens to think about the relationship between state and private capital that is created through the return of the st- state in climate politics and generally in, in industrial policy. Uh, it puts capital in the driving seat, and I'm sure we'll get to this. Uh, it is, to my mind, uh, uh, an inadequate script for the climate transition. We will not get the the structural transformation that we need uh, for uh, alignment with the Paris targets uh, under the framework of de-risking.
0: You argue that, that instead of this bribe-to-capital formation de-risking, what we really need instead is a big green state. What is that? and and what tools would a big green state wield as sticks to discipline capital in contrast to what to what you're describing as the carrots that the de-risking state uses to bribe capital
1: very good so in general i think about the, the notion of bribing is also at the core of de-risking in the sense that the state absorbs some risks from private investments in order to make certain public policy priorities investable, right? And this is a logic that comes from, or an intuition that comes from a kind of very market-based place in the sense that it diagnoses the lack of investment in certain sectors as a consequence of the wrong price signal or the wrong risk return profile. So what the state does is to improve the risk return profile, for example, through tax credits. And or it, it can be through tax credits, it can be through loan guarantees, there is a very broad range of the risking measures and they are not only fiscal, they can be regulatory, you can have all sorts of forms. For example, in, the, in Europe we have feed-in tariffs as a, a regulation to encourage demand for uh, renewable energies or to, in a sense, force some demand for, for renew, renewable energies. Uh, but the, the, there is a, a series of carrots that, that the state provides through in, in various forms as uh, guarantees, as tax credits, as loans on preferential terms. But because the logic is of partnerships for investability, there is no space for the state to introduce measures to discipline private capital into strategic priorities when market conditions change or when profitability conditions change. And that, to me, is something that uh, the big green state can do, is to move away from the logic of the market signal. And how does it move away from the logic of the market signal? Is either through a much closer control of the pace and nature of, of private investment than what we're getting through de-risking or through direct public ownership. So that's one very important aspect of of the big green state is a close closer control of private uh, investment and the second one is a change in the macroeconomic in the relationship between the institutions of macroeconomic policy making one where there is a closer coordination between the central bank and and the, the treasury uh, or the minister minister ministry of finance to support industrial policy and to support a a, a kind of more discipline based approach to to industrial policy.
0: Ted Ted, and Tim, what do you make of Daniela's argument? Are some of what Daniela characterizes as carrots, in, in your view, actually sticks?
3: I, I think there's a few angles that we could take at this. One of them, one of the questions to ask is sort of what progressive aims uh, were encoded in the legislation? What did progressive organizations and forces bring into the debates and to the organizing and to the push around what became Bidenomics. Uh, So we can think about to what extent the legislation uh, that was enacted encodes uh, various progressive priorities or doesn't. I think it can be worthwhile to think about what parts of the IRA might not actually follow uh, the de-risking logic that Daniela articulates, uh, because I think there are some and and they're important to understand. It's also probably worth talking about those things that are getting done through regulation or that could get done through regulation outside of the framework of the the legislation itself that do encode certain disciplining logics, potentially. It might be worth talking about parts of the legislation or parts of the overall legislative agenda that did encode a disciplining logic that did not make it into the final legislation. So, for example, one of the ones that I've I, I focused on a lot in some of these Twitter debates is the uh, clean energy payments program, which was a part of the legislation that was proposed that would have ma- essentially mandated the full decarbonization of the power sector in the United States. It didn't happen. Right. And we can talk about why it didn't happen.
0: Because of the balance of uh, of political forces.
3: Yeah. And and, we, and and I think it's worth getting specific about that. Right. Um. And then I think we could also talk about the reason, some of the reasons behind the, the, why we ended up with this de-risking logic that might be defensible, uh, from, from a progressive point of view. And so here thinking in particular, uh, you know, Tim, Tim has uh, introduced to, to the, to the discourse, the idea of bottomless mimosas, but there was a real, uh, theory about how you get much more fiscal bang for your buck through the use of certain instrumentalities of the tax code that enabled you to do a much greater amount of climate spending than the Congressional Budget Office would score, which allowed you potentially maybe to sneak past some of the veto points that existed within the U.S. political system at the time uh, that many of us were working to get this legislation passed. So so, so any of those angles are, are possible responses. And then broadly, right, I think we 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 absolutely want to talk about what any and all of this says about the balance of forces, because ultimately, I think that that is the determining factor here, right? That is, at some basic level, why we get what we get. And we can think about whether we could have done better. Uh, and we can also think about what we can do given, given with, with what we've accomplished. But I do think that just by way of starting it off that there's obviously an immense amount of truth to what daniela is saying right and and, and the core idea that most of what's going to be accomplished is going to be accomplished by trying to you know you could say push or you could say coax or you could say entice or you could say bribe but one way or another try to redirect the flow of private investment towards what we have determined to be a set of socially or politically useful purposes that is clearly the the single most important mechanism at work in this all of this legislation combined. And and people are very explicit, right? That they ultimately expect the ratio of public investment, right, of direct public dollars being spent to private dollars. The the, the amount of private money is supposed to be much bigger, right? And we can debate whether that should be or should not be, but that is without question the underlying uh, logic. I don't think it's quite as extreme as some of what you see in the discussions about how you're going to get investment flowing to the global south, for example, um, where the ratios are just absolutely astronomical. But the, but the underlying logic is, I, I, I think it, it, it's absolutely there. But so we should we should think about what that means
2: when we talk about the balance of sort of political forces. Like, what explicitly do we mean? Like, what what one way is that this entire Bidenomics legislative package had to make its way through Congress, and it's hemmed in by sort of three big forces um, inside the US Congress that are also there in other countries and jurisdictions like the EU. So one of those big ones is the power of the deficit talks. These are people who don't want spending to be greater than the revenue. So every dollar of spending has to be backed by a dollar of taxpayer uh, of some entity that is going to be taxed. So that's the deficit hawks that are, you know, people like Pelosi, people like uh, Biden himself, um, people like Janet Yellen, you know, these, these are really people who are monitoring public spending. And so we are still very much within, within the neoliberal sort of discipline of public spending, which is one reason why you can't do many things on the public balance sheet, because taxpayer dollars are politically expensive. They may not be expensive in any sort of MMT style or whatever, even a taxpayer dollar that is increasing the productive base of a country increases tax revenue in the future, so it sort of pays for itself in future growth. So there's a lot of there's a lot of sort of stupidity and ideological constraints holding back public spending. So those are the deficit hawks. The second sort of big powerful group are China hawks, including in the administration themselves, who are driving a very aggressive China containment agenda, sort of taking taking the baton from Trump and, and carrying it much, much further. And so the China hawks are also constraining what can and cannot be done in the bill, what must be done. We've got to onshore chips. We've got to onshore solar panel manufacturing. We've got to be really careful about critical minerals. Uh, we've got to increase the Pentagon's budget to mount... Uh, a two front war uh, you know both both in both in europe and uh, against russia and, and and against china so china hawks deficit hawks and then the third extraordinarily powerful one are fossil capitalists these are let's call them the fossil hawks but these 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 are forces that are that have grown much tremendously larger in the last 10 or 15 years under obama the united states congress um, sort of gave a lot of a, a, a lot of support to building out the shale boom in the form of, you know, shepherding a, a massive pipeline boom, a boom in the Appalachian Basin of oil and gas, a boom in the Permian Basin of oil and gas, and the United States by 2015 became the world's largest oil and gas producer. Um, in 2015, the Republicans pushed to make sure that we lifted the crude oil export ban. And all of a sudden, the United States goes for the first time in 40 years to starting to export crude oil and from then natural gas. And literally in 2016, the United States exported zero molecules of of oil and gas. And by 2022, by the time this bill is being negotiated, the United States became the world's largest gas producer, uh, gas exporter. So these fossil hawks are also really driving a a policy agenda um, and removing these sticks on fossil fuels. And they get a huge shot in the arm after the Ukraine war as prices shoot up. And, you know, the Biden people are reduced to calling it Putin inflation and trying to sort of really blame inflation on the rising oil and gas prices. But those rising oil and gas prices gave a Huge boost to the oil and gas industry that literally said, open all the floodgates, give us all the permits. We want to expand oil and gas drilling to take advantage of these uh, of these high prices. And so these bills that are formed, you know, they are formed by that public spending limit. They are formed by anti-China, make in America sort of policies. And they are formed by a lot of carrots um, and no sticks at all to, to fossil capital.
1: Tim, can I just clarify? Because to me, the U.S. CHIPS Act, it has some of the what we know from the literature on in- successful industrial policy, particularly in East Asia. It has some of this kind of compulsive institutions that the state designs in order to monitor and kind of discipline capital into its strategic priorities. And I'm wondering why was it that it was possible for the U.S. to build some of these uh, compulsive institutions into the U.S. CHIPS Act, which for me is not a, a, a manifestation of a de-risking logic, but not in the IRA. Is it because the power of fossil cap- capital worked differently in these two different spaces and, you know, microchips maybe doesn't have the same kind of Political concern for for fossil fuel capital than than it has for uh, than the u s IRA would have
0: and also perhaps that the the positive motivation of geoeconomic and geopolitical conflict with china depressingly seems to be the sort of motivation that can overcome almost any obstacle in American politics.
3: Just to say quickly, and Tim may have other thoughts, but um, I think one thing that's really important uh, about CHIPS is that it activated the uh, corporate concentration anxiety uh, on the left in a much more intense way than IRA did. IRA promised all sorts of capitalist interests, uh, profitable uh, opportunities for profit-making, uh, over you know a five and ten and twenty year horizon, but not in a way that necessarily inflamed fears of intense and concentrated corporate welfare. But chips promised to funnel billions of dollars directly to three or four or five companies uh, that are already massive companies that control uh, that that have massive market share within their respective sectors. And, and, and you know the progressive caucus was but public about, about their their efforts in this respect. But for example, things like the uh, ban on stock buybacks uh, in chips, which is not actually in the legislation itself, it was in the subsequent rulemaking that the Commerce Department undertook, was something that was fought for very explicitly by the Congressional Progressive Caucus on the theory that uh, while we were all absolutely in favor of investments in U.S. and science and technology and the semiconductor industry, and we all understood the need for resiliency and supply chains, and nobody wanted to repeat what had happened when U.S. automakers canceled all their chips orders and suddenly we couldn't produce cars. Uh, everybody agreed we didn't want to go back to that. Um, but there was a real concern to make sure that this didn't just amount to a massive exercise in corporate welfare. Um, and then obviously, I think, uh, Dan, you're, you're right. The, the, the sort of China hawk component of it um, also meant that some of the some of the strict in the Chips Act, have to do with the ability of the companies that were benefiting from Chips Act money to engage uh, in investment and research and other uh, forms of economic activity in countries that were deemed to be a national security threat, which obviously everyone understood to be uh, to be China. So, so both of those factors were very pitched uh, in in chips in a way that I think was was a little bit more intense than we saw uh, around the IRA debate.
0: Tim.
2: Yeah, I think the, the idea of like, are these subsidies just sort of corporate welfare? <laughs> and, you know, maybe maybe the, the CHIPS Act was able to have a, a few more uh, sort of constraints on, on, on good labor provisions and and procurement from America, et cetera, et cetera. But um, the IRA is more of a de-risking corporate welfare sort of thing. I I don't think that's quite right, because it depends on like, what do we mean by sticks? Like, are these actual penalties? OK, so the IRA doesn't have very many actual penalties, except for two big penalties that, that you know, we, we should really talk about. Firstly, it's a tax bill. So it's going back to Deficit talks. They said you've got to make this into a tax bill that pays uh, for the spending that you're about to put out and we are going to calculate the spending, the Congressional Budget Office is going to score the bill and say it's got roughly $370 billion of spending via all of these tax credits, and therefore they have to be matched by some revenue raisers, which is U.S. sort of speak for taxes. And the Biden administration, right from the get-go in March of, of 2021, when they released the American Jobs Plan and the Families Plan, had an entire slew of measures of about $4.5 trillion of taxes that they were going to raise. And those taxes were basically reversing the Trump era tax cuts on the Fortune 500 uh, companies and installing a new uh, tax on people who make more than $400,000, which was sort of Trump, uh, Biden's promise that he's not going to raise taxes on anyone making less than that. Um, and, But over the course of this sort of like fighting of all of the 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 corporate forces that don't want to be taxed. They just said, screw you, you aren't going to tax us. And so that $4.5 trillion goes into $2.5 trillion, $1.75 trillion in the House bill back better. And then the final bill is still a tax bill, but it's a much narrower, smaller tax bill, which puts a 15% corporate alternative minimum tax that puts about $200 billion of taxes. So that's a penalty on, on the tax avoiding sort of corporations. And it gives the IRS more money.
1: But sorry, sorry, Tim, but this is sorry, Tim, but this is not a penalty or it's not a stick that that ensures uh, the companies that are receiving subsidies are pursuing the industrial policy objectives of the government. I mean, it's a very broad it's
0: a generally applicable tax.
1: It's Exactly. To me, that is not a stick at all. The opposite.
2: <laughs> yeah, that, that, that that's that's that's. That's a general tax, um, um, and you know there's also a one percent tax on stock buybacks. Again, something that should have been in chips as well, but was was um, in the IRA. But it is a, okay. It's not. It's not an explicit penalty against no. the companies that are getting the money. It's a general tax um, measure. Perhaps
0: you could argue that it's a stick a stick vis-a-vis capital in in general, maybe, but not in terms of pursuing the particular industrial policy. Yeah,
2: but 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 that still means that the IRS is. And the tra- and the U.S. Treasury behind it are, is the agency through which all of U.S. industrial policy is now mm. going through. And the IRS has to have enough people and staff to monitor these tax credits, what I've been calling these bottomless mimosas, because they are uncapped. They're limitless. You just show up at the IRS bar and they give you a mimosa and you go and you bring all of your friends back in, which is what progressives should be doing so that more and more people go to the bar and the IRS keeps giving you mimosas. Um, But that can easily turn into champagne for the rich without enough tax enforcement. It can easily turn uh, into sort of carbon sludge. You just get a whole bunch of greenwashing firms that show up at the IRS door and say, hey, I've got a green project. And it's just carbon sludge. So those, so bottomless mimosas is sort of a metaphor to capture this idea that this entire thing is happening at the IRS. And the IRS, without proper staffing, without proper enforcement, without monitoring, without clear rules, which the Treasury has been writing for the past six months, um, it just turns into a stickless um, corporate welfare.
0: So the, st- so the stick is enforcing that people aren't taking it, in- are actually following the strictures of the tax credits. Daniela.
1: I, I worry when progressives have to 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 celebrate well, well as Tim says, that capital gets and more and more and more resources and we have to de- de- celebrate a distributional outcome that favors capital with very little meaningful sticks in place. I mean I don't i I don't see from where I stand and from the European experience of designing much more. Biting sticks, particularly to to discipline fossil capital, the idea that your your tax officers are going to be in charge of industrial policy, of green industrial policy, is on many levels (laughs) A, a level of political wishful thinking and defending to me a you know the the politically pragmatic outcome that could be obtained in the US but let's not confuse that for progressive for prog- progressive distributional outcomes or even for successful green industrial policy because I don't know when a ta- an IRS tax officer is going to say to Ford or to uh, Tesla your electric vehicles that you're producing are three times or getting larger and larger and are using more and more resources, and that's actually not what we need. What we need is I don't know smaller electric cars or an, an electric public transport. So. I think we have to be careful, from where I stand, not to mistake, you know, leaving behind a status quo that was clearly very much against any kind of progressive climate politics to a bottom- bottomless mimosas for for, pri- for private capital, which even unions in the US are questioning as not so much in favor of either creating skilled jobs or, you know, the discourses of place that you heard earlier actually uh, manifesting or, or, or generating the skill uh, the demand for skilled labor that unions would would encourage there are many examples that this is not the case so i'm i'm skeptical i think i think the team has to come up with better with a better uh, fight back against
2: <laughs> <laughs> i would agree that we should be very skeptical and we need to be very involved in the monitoring and enforcement process because this is this can really go off the rails. And exactly what you're saying, unions are upset. Like this was supposed to create good paying union jobs, as the Biden administration keeps saying, but are they? you know, Lee Harris of the American Prospect has reported on the solar jobs in, in the solar industry in Texas, etc. And they have currently pretty shitty jobs. Workers are hired through mainly temporary staffing contractors who have the discretion to fire them at a moment's notice. And then, you know, they'll make them drive across the country. Uh, to on their own money to get to the job site. Harassment and abuse is is, is completely rampant. They, these are just temporary gig work. They're not really careers. And rather than becoming sort of union electricians, uh who can work in a variety of projects, these non-union workers are trained to be a new category of a worker, solar installer, which is a much narrower category. And you know the Biden administration will say, yeah, but you know we are using our discretion to encourage these higher labor standards, and we're going to have more monitoring. Uh, But that's hard, Um, and it's particularly even harder in the chip industry when, as Ted was saying, there's just three or four firms that are getting all of the money from TSMC to, to to Intel. And so when you insist that no, you know we need to have higher labor standards, that's going to get hard if there's just three or four companies. Uh, that say you don't have any bargaining negotiating leverage. TSMC is building a gigantic plant in in Phoenix, uh, Arizona, and they've refused to sign <laughs> a project labor agreement with the local unions. And they've mostly employed non-union uh, construction labor, and they're using out-of-state and overseas uh, workers. Can the Biden administration actually... Use these uh, enforcement uh, mechanisms to to get uh, union jobs. They haven't even tried. TSMC has just announced that they'll be bringing in 500 new Taiwanese workers to finish building the plant because they say it's too hard to use local labor. And I really don't see the Department of Commerce, you know, really using its muscle. Um, It 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 will have a lot of good words in the guidance. There are a lot of pro-worker goals in the guidance. But TSMC knows that it has the upper hand, that the U.S. needs the TSMC more than the TSMC needs uh, the U.S. And and they can't play hardball.
0: Ted, it seems like a basic point of debate here isn't so much whether this new industrial policy and the IRA and the other legislation are beset by the contradictions and problems of neoliberal capitalism. It seems like there is some consensus on it, but sort of it almost seems like the, the point of debate is what sort of terrain of struggle this represents and Whether it is pointing us in any sort of promisingly new direction or not potentially, or whether it's totally captured by prior logics. I
3: think um, a couple of things that that can maybe open that up a little bit. One thing just to say before we totally skip over the question, the one thing that the IRA included, which was not talked about much but is a big deal, is it included a fee on methane that was viciously fought by the fossil fuel industry and gas. The oil and gas industry, but did end up going in there. That is a stick on fossil capital. It's not the biggest and most important one, but it is a, a meaningful one that shouldn't be left out of the discussion. I think one way to get at this might be to focus in on some specific provisions and or on some specific sectors. You know, I think Daniela uh, brought us into the terrain of the auto industry, and we could. I think it would be good to talk about that. One of the things that progressives and this ended up mattering more in the in the power sector than the auto sector, but I'll come back to it. But one of the things that progressives really pushed for in the making of of the cli- of U.S. climate policy was that there should be, if if not outright sticks, though we push for those, the carrot should encourage good behavior. And I do think if you look at the structure of the tax credits, there is a fair amount that you can point to in there that is worth lifting up as genuinely good. So, for example. Uh, And this is why labor, much of the labor movement was genuinely enthusiastic about IRA as it came to be. So the basic clean energy tax credit, right, the the investment tax credit, which is going to incentivize wind and solar, geothermal, other things, the structure of it is that just building those things, you can take a 6% federal tax credit, you know, just off the top, right, of the the cost of installing uh, that power generation equipment. Uh, if you use prevailing wage, right, if you pay prevailing wage in your construction of that wind facility or the solar panels or whatever, that baseline credit goes from 6% to 30%. Um, and so that 30%, uh, the differential between the 6 and the 30 that 24% differential is larger than the pay differential between paying prevailing wage and paying uh, whatever the wage would be in the local labor market otherwise. Um, and so that is a very significant incentive. For people who are building clean energy generation to pay prevailing wage and paying prevailing wage is a really big deal for especially building trades unions, right? It doesn't guarantee union organization, not by any stretch, but it very significantly levels the playing field between non-union and union labor such that there's a shot of organizing. And it takes some of the pressure off the unionized sector uh, to have to uh, uh, make concessions to contractors um, when, when they are able to get union contracts, project labor, labor agreements, so on and so forth. There's the energy communities provision, right, which uh, which gives an additional bonus tax credit for locating generation uh, in certain places that were heavily dependent on the fossil economy or that suffered from suffered the consequences of locating fossil uh, production production. Uh, and activities in in a geographic area. There's a low income bump. There's there's a whole bunch of things in there that do encourage uh, private investors to do to do certain things a certain way. There's been a lot of talk on on Twitter. People know about uh, direct pay, right? So one of the things that progressives I think rightly count as a big win in IRA uh, is that now for the first time, uh, public and nonprofit entities can receive these tax credits basically just as a cash payment, even though they themselves have no tax liability. And so what it means is that municipal governments, for example, can get in on the clean energy game in a way that they were structurally uh, excluded from before. So there's the opportunity to create actual public ownership. Uh, uh, through through that provision but
0: this was crucial to the feasibility of New York's recently passed build public renewables act correct
3: absolutely right the sort of dug-in opposition of the New York power authority and the New York state governor that switched to basic openness was a function of realizing that thanks to direct pay they could uh, tap into a massive amount of direct federal funding to build renewables themselves which previously had been quite uh, quite complicated from a legal and financial uh, point of view to do just to come to auto's because I think there's a lot uh, that we could look at there. There were some major progressive goals uh, that were brought into the initial debates about how to structure an industrial policy for the auto industry. Everybody agreed that the one one key portion, one key component of decarbonizing the US economy is decarbonizing autos, right? And um, there were things that people wanted to do to create let's say the highest road pathway forward for that. On the assumption that we were not ever looking at building a public own competitor to uh, car manufacturers. We could talk about whether we should have, but I can promise you that was never on the table. Uh, so as long as we were going to continue in a world of private production of automobiles, what, what were people trying to do? Well, Um, The Biden people initially had an idea that there would be a union bump on the EV tax credit. I believe it was $4,000 or maybe $5,000 on top of the 7,500 general EV credit. And that would go to uh, any EV that was made in a union facility. And this was meant to... Uh, be uh, an an explicit bonus uh, or incentive to or advantage to the unionized uh, auto sector in, you know, mostly in the northern Midwest, and and a disadvantage, relatively speaking, to the foreign automakers and also non-union U.S.-owned automakers uh, that mostly produce in right-to-work states in in the U.S.
0: In In the South, in particular. In
3: the South, in particular. This was, of course, viciously opposed by the foreign automakers. It was viciously opposed by the EU itself, which actively lobbied against it. It was viciously opposed by both Canada and Mexico, who, uh, within the context of you know, the free trade area, the North American free trade area, thought that they would be significantly disadvantaged by this. Um, and it was opposed by uh, Joe Manchin, who anticipated EV production locating in West Virginia, uh, it assumed that it would be foreign non-union EV production and didn't want, want to see those uh, those investments disadvantaged. So the union bump, uh, which a lot of people advocated for, was, was slashed. There were, nevertheless, uh, still some important uh, provisions, right, in terms of uh, making this more progressive. So, and some of them, frankly, are uh, ought to be credited to Joe Manchin himself. So, Joe Manchin was very upset about the idea that very rich people would be getting the EV subsidies, and so he pushed for an income cap on. The the households that could tap into this tax credit, uh, so households over three hundred thousand uh, dollars couldn't get the tax credit. And um, Mansion also pushed for a used EV tax credit, uh, so that people who are buying used cars could actually get some incentive from from the federal government. So in a in a funny way, uh, Mansion uh, worked in some some more progressive elements to that that overall regime. But there were then some really, I think, significant shortcomings that people in the administration were didn't like um, and that the auto unions didn't like. So, for example, uh, those um, adder structure that exists in the clean energy tax credit really don't exist in the uh, manufacturing tax credits at all. So there's very little in the law on the manufacturing tax credit side where uh, IRS money is going to automakers for uh, for clean manufacturing that encourages prevailing wage or that encourages any particular kinds of, of labor standards, they were we were not successful in encoding those sorts of standards um, into a lot of those tax credits. And then and Danielle has drawn attention to this, and the UAW has drawn attention to this. You know, one of the big uh, pieces of the IRA um, is the funding for the uh, Department of Energy and its loan program loan programs office. This is another largely sort of a, a mechanism that evades some of the fiscal hawks because. The actual scoring, fiscal scoring of the money that goes to the loan program office is much smaller than the actual lending that they're going to undertake. There's very little in the law that attaches explicit labor standards um, or other things like that to to the lending that the loan program office is is doing. That said, at the same time, there are many, I think, well-meaning administrators and others within the Biden administration who are trying to figure out within the constraints of the law, Within the constraints of the reconciliation process, which is how we got this through Congress, which makes it really difficult to attach regulations uh, to any spending, how can the deals that are being negotiated with individual firms um, encode labor standards? And I think you can point to some places where they've been very successful. Uh, The Bluebird uh, Union campaign uh, is one of them, some places where they've been, been unsuccessful. Um, And just the last thing I'll say is that it is important, I think, to keep in view the regulatory processes that are playing out simultaneously. So in the case of autos, right, the EPA issued new tailpipe regulations. Now, some people think they're not strict enough, um, but that is absolutely a form of discipline, right? It is going to make it basically illegal for automakers to produce um, certain lines of internal combustion engines over time uh, or prohibitively expensive for them to do so. And so there is a stick component, which involves no money of forcing the industry to transition to a different production profile in order to achieve uh, decarbonization goals. And although that's not in the legislation, I do think it ought to be considered part of the overall package.
0: I want to get a little deeper into first labor, then decarbonization, then public ownership. Ted, you made some really important points here around the labor provisions that were initially proposed and then ultimately not included, and then a lot of things that are being worked out on the terrain of the administrative state. And it really is sort of like a split-screen situation with labor and the IRA, because on the one hand, you have this recent huge win by the steelworkers at Bluebird's Electric Bus Factory in Georgia, which unionized, thanks in some significant part, I think, to the EPA's rule for their clean school bus program that recipients of funds... Must agree to union neutrality and barring the use of federal funds for anti union activity, something that the steelworkers use to their advantage. But as keeps being referred to, the and oh, as a quick aside, that's a very notable union victory in Southern manufacturing. But then on the other hand, the UAW just released a lengthy video statement from the new left aligned militant leadership of their union attacking this energy department plan to lend $9 million to this Ford-SK joint venture to build three battery plants with no labor strings attached, which is part of this more general concern that we're hearing from the UAW that the move to EVs will accelerate rather than reverse the decline of union density in auto manufacturing. What sort of terrain of struggle has Bidenomics created for labor? And where does the self-activity of of workers, of unions that are more militant and more ready to strike fit into how this all plays out on on the new terrain to the extent that it is a new terrain, which might be part of the debate.
1: <laughs> if I may go first, just because I wanted to respond to um, some of the points Ted made and I will forget them. So I think, you know, unless you so if I listen to Ted's arguments around how you be how the Biden administration has built certain Carrots into the provisions of the IRA in order to ensure a, a better labour rights or, or better pay, and these carrots are quite significant. No, twenty four percent tax credit is is a lot more than six percent, and. and I mean, it sounds very persuasive, and I think this is one of the difficulties with the Biden administration that it has a, a, a kind of outside layer, like an onion, of progressive politics that that can be enabled or not, but with a core of very hard core pro-capital distributional politics. And I'm I would be really curious to to know, but I haven't seen the the data. To what extent are the announced IRA private investments? like what percentage is really following or really uh, using the 24 percent tax credit i mean is uh, is, uh, is the way to get union to, to get better um, distributional outcomes for labor is 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 the way through de-risking is it, is it really possible that bribing uh, to to bribe private capital into making working conditions better for labor i have some doubts about that but i also know being in europe that our tra- trade unions which are in general i would say stronger at least on the continent not in the in the new UK our trade unions were looking with very enviously at the, the the Biden administration process of working with unions saying, you know, in, in Europe, nobody involves us in the, in the same extent. So there is a kind of little bit of a paradox for me here, because on the one hand, it, you, you can look at the half the glass half uh, full and say, well, you know, uh, this is the best that we could be done given the, the very specific politi- politics that uh, Ted outlined. But if you look at the glass half empty, in the end, this process leaves at the discretion of private capital the extent to which they will uh, adopt certain uh, labor rules that could be mandated. You know, a big green state could say you have to have this level of wages if you if you don't want to come under very strict provisions for for decarbonization. And that, that's a, a regulation. It doesn't use the price signal. It just says this is what you need to do in order for you to stay in, in, in business. And I, as a state, have the right to mandate that. But this is not what is happening. The, what is happening is you get 24% uh, tax credits if you include certain... Uh, Um, better conditions for workers within your whatever new factory or new EV plant.
0: And Ted, I would add to that, that whether the glass is half full or half empty probably also depends on what corner of the labor movement you're looking at that glass from whether you're looking at it from the building trades, which seem to have made out pretty well under the IRA or the UAW from the manufacturing side where there's a lot less leverage provided By the IRA, in terms of unionizing the workers—not the workers who are building the manufacturing facilities, but the workers who are working to do the manufacturing once the facilities are
3: built—I think um, the the question about what is the terrain of of labor struggle post the main Biden obex legislative package is a really interesting one, uh, and and we could probably approach it from a couple different angles, but you know, if we stick on the auto sector for a second at a global level, right? Um, and, and this could take us into another realm of controversies, right? The the IRA does absolutely encode some things that you could call protectionist that create a really significant incentive to locate production of all aspects of the auto supply chain in the United States, or at least in, in, in North America, right? And uh, so that's the critical minerals provisions within the batteries, and um, that's the assembly requirements. Um, and all these are connected to the ability to access the manufacturing tax credits and the ability for consumers to access the uh, point of sale uh, consumer tax credits when they when they purchase an EV. And those have been the source of immense controversy, right, uh, in terms of uh, the U.S.'s uh, trading partners and allies and, and, and what have you. And we can talk about the carve outs that have been made and whether that vitiates it or not. But in the end event, there's going to be a lot more auto manufacturing in the United States. Uh, I think it's pretty safe to say uh, thanks to thanks to the IRA and a lot of the EV supply chain that might otherwise have been located elsewhere um, is going to be located in the United States. So to the extent that you have trapped, uh, in a sense, private capital in the United States, if they want to be able to access these very significant financial incentives, it, it, from a global perspective, you would say that that ought to be helpful to uh the project of of increasing union density in the auto sector it should all things equal reduce the threat of offshoring that has hung over so much of of auto unionism for the past 40 or 50 years not just offshoring but also you know probably even more importantly the just the movement of production from union to non-union states so so at that level you know y- y- you should imagine there's going to be a lot of demand for autos, there's going to be a lot of production of autos in the U.S., that that all things equal creates some, um, some, some leverage for, for auto workers to be able to organize. Uh, on the other hand, uh, certainly what we've been seeing, right, is that the absence of uh, some of the big green state type provisions that Danielle is talking about means that a lot of the investment in the EV supply chain um, is happening in right-to-work states. And some states, I think Georgia has probably been the most uh, sophisticated and aggressive in its policy of working to attract those investments, um, are really, you know, militantly anti-union places, right, Um, that are absolutely going to fight any beachheads of the UAW or other industrial unions with with every tool at their disposal. I mean, many of us watched before EVs, right, many of us watched what happened uh, even when the Volkswagen workers were able to get Volkswagen to agree to... uh, uh, neutrality at a union election in Tennessee, and the state of Tennessee and all the elected officials in the state started going on television to mount a massive uh, anti-union campaign, motivated by the fear that the liberal Obama-supporting UAW was going to get a beachhead in, in in the right to work south. So
0: they threatened the co- They threatened the com- They threatened to retaliate against the company if they agreed to neutrality.
3: Right. Well, I think the company. Ha- yeah. Exactly. They, right. They threatened to take away all the local tax incentives that they had offered uh, if if the company went along with this. So I think nothing about the IRA, right, uh, stops the anti-union forces in uh, the anti-union parts of America from using every single tool at their disposal to fight unionization. And I think, you, you know, Brian Kemp is, again, probably the most sophisticated player in this because he's trying to assimilate all of the federal money to uh, what will look to the outside like a classic sort of southern economic development strategy, uh, which is explicitly anti-union. But but I guess I just think that even in the absence of IRA, right, there was going to be growth of the EV sector. There was going to be continued enticements for uh, companies to want it to the extent that they were going to locate in the U.S. at all, to locate in right-to-work states. And the path forward for organizing that sector was going to be, was going to be treacherous. It's very hard for me to see how we're in a worse position in terms of the, the 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 class class struggle within the auto sector post-IRA than we were before it. And so I completely understand uh, Sean Fein, you know, criticizing the Biden administration for a $9 billion loan to Ford and, and their joint venture partner um, that seems to have very few strings attached. But I also think that's probably just part of the way that these fights are going to play out. The UAW has got to figure out a strategy for getting in there and organizing those workers. They'll find, I think, you know, so long as you have Biden administration in, in Washington, they'll find that they've got a supportive NLRB uh, that's willing to, you know, uh, really go after companies for, for unfair labor practices. Uh, you know they'll find a, a public support in the form of the things that the president and others will say. And they'll find that we continue to operate in a legal terrain that is extremely favorable to capital in any in any capital labor struggle. You know, last thing I'll say, you know, Dan, I believe you've had episodes about this uh, on your show. But you know, one of the things that people tried to put into Bidenomics, into the overall package, was the the PRO Act, right? The Protecting the Right to Organize uh, Act, which would have substantially increased penalties uh, on employers for a variety of anti labor, anti union practices, which would have made illegal uh, certain core, you know, union avoidance strategies. And and we couldn't win it, right? The votes were not there uh, to force that through uh, in, in reconciliation. Uh, and so, you know, significant change to U.S. labor law is not one, one of the things that was uh, a part of the Bidenomics package, even though the administration and probably, you know, 85 to 90 percent of congressional Democrats pretty ardently supported it.
2: Tim, if if I could just I mean, Ted made a really good point about um, the auto sector is extremely globalized. Um, so it, it, it's not something that can be done with just domestic U.S. Congress support. So. So if we are trying to increase unionization and let's say U.S. Democratic Caucus supports it, but if the Europeans and the South Koreans don't support it, it could still die. So, you know, Manchin was heavily lobbied by Toyota and Tesla that had non-union factories in the state of West Virginia. And the story that Ted was talking about, the, the, the European ambassadors literally wrote a letter to Schumer and Pelosi in October or November uh, 2021 saying kill the pro-union provisions because our factories, our European car company factories are in non-union states. And their industry association independently also lobbied to kill these. So the auto sector is uniquely globalized and post the IRA. And, you know, you know the, the I really thought the Europeans were just operating in, in bad faith because they said, this This line of criticism of oh, we didn't know about all of your domestic content and final assembly packages, and they do a freak out in september october, November after the bill passes last year, but they were already lobbying to kill the bill or kill the pro union provisions in the bill in 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 twenty twenty one um so I, I I thought it was largely in bad faith and and the question of um are the, are the european firms excessively corporatist and in bed with the EU to sort of not do pro-union stuff and pro-union stuff at home or in the U.S.? Are they just sort of using the U.S. non-union states as, 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 a, as a base to manufacture vehicles? That's just on the, on the EV side. And on the domestic side, the opponents of unionization aren't just the right-to-work states, but also the entire crew of people that came together on the domestic progressive side to push for a child care push for three to four-year-olds getting pre-K um, and a lot of sort of care jobs for elder care, which is what SEIU, um, this uh, Service Employees Union, was, was pushing for, that entire set of provisions in the bill was chopped out. Now, was it chopped out because, um, you know, these, these jobs are largely done by uh, by lower-paid, uh, browner, blacker, largely women uh, uh, workers? that have not been um, sort of strong, uh, that have never been uh, traditionally uh, unionized. And this was sort of a push, maybe a once in a generation push to win unionization in this sector of the economy. And we sort of lost it and we just don't get the chance again. The the, the whole sort of like who is actually trying to kill unionization, I don't think can be put just at inside the Democratic uh, caucus for the international Pressure that comes to bear and then within the Democratic caucus, sort of which parts, uh, um, which sectors, the care work versus the manufacturing versus the construction unions um, actually get, you know, get the benefit um, is up in the air.
0: Daniela, do you want to respond before I ask my next question?
1: Yes, just to, to note that, I mean, it is right. I, I, I would never say that European private capital is somehow more altruistic or more union-inclined <laughs> than, than the US private capital. And I'm not surprised at the level of lobbying. I think there is an interesting kind of geopolitical angle to discuss because the European, I mean, the risking as a, as a strategy to uh, kind of energize or, or, or scale up uh, Private uh, the energy transition in particular has been used by by European countries for longer than the Biden administration uh, has made it a, like a cornerstone of their policy and and that to my mind also reminds us that that the risking or the the green capitalist state is is by necessity of political and macro financial for- forces of structural forces is by necessity a the risking state so yes i'm i Europe, european private capital has fought very very hard uh, at home as well to make sure that it minimizes the impact or the the kind of progressive disposition of any of, of the return of the state in 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 industrial policy or through, through climate policy that is not a, a specific kind of us Dimension what is interesting to me and maybe we'll come to this is why Europeans activated all their misgivings when when the u s started doing large scale derisking of of the climate transition, but not when China did it. China has done this for for much longer, and in many ways Europeans were much more relaxed about creating markets for Chinese solar uh, manufacturing than they were about creating markets for u s um, uh, solar or or car manufacturing, and that that has to do something with the geopolitical tensions within what we think is the the North Alliance, uh, rather than otherwise.
0: Deindustrialization, the the battering of the American working class un- and unions, regional inequality, I think that all really gets us to the real theory of politics behind the IRA and Bidenomics more generally. And and my read is that Bidenomics recognizes historically that the New Deal order created a material basis for a mass political constituency for New Deal coalition politics, namely through unionization and thus labor receiving this historically high share of national income. And it it recognizes that neoliberalism, which the Biden administration refers to, I think pretty consistently as trickle down economics. I think that's their code word for neoliberalism, that it's geographically uneven and extremely unequal distribution of income that this created a material basis for trumpism for for reactionary populism and authoritarianism how does bidenomics propose to create a new material basis for liberal democratic politics and then returning to the debate we've been having does that theory seem likely to succeed on the ground because will it succeed if these jobs don't end up getting unionized or alternately If they're heading to red states in the Sun Belt, where people, let's say even it becomes like a really great economic situation for people there getting these new jobs, hypothetically, they just won't give Biden and the Democrats credit for it. Are they creating a a material basis for this new sort of politics? Is it even possible to do so in today's United States?
1: And can, can I just start very briefly and under the provision that I am a, I, I'm, a, I'm an economist who doesn't have a very good theory of politics. So I would let others get into it. But I, I would just say that from the discussion that we've had so far, particularly from uh, Ted and Tim, my takeaway is that like neoliberalism, bidenomics kind of presents workers with the same choice of either you're excluded or exploited. So it doesn't seem to me that it really kind of amplifies or creates a terrain for some really radical reorganization. And as a European who lives in in a country and who was born in a country where the state played a much more important role in the public provision of public goods, I think as a U.S. worker, I'm not sure what how much of a change would I see in my daily life from from. Uh, the US IRA, except maybe that my job—I mean, the 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 concerns of what you call militant unions, what I think is just regular unions in in our corner of the world. Uh, the concern is I mean if we get worse jobs uh, a lot of the p- fiscal resources directly into profits for private capital and we we get the same financialization of of public goods that we've we've had so far I mean what is at stake here or what, what is it that we're really getting and I, I'm not I mean I'm not claiming to have an answer but I don't know that the answer is very straightforward everything will be better
2: Tim tad I, I think it's what like looking at the full package of Bidenomics. So we talked about this sort of activist legislative push to put federal dollars in the left-behind areas and left-behind communities, making sure that, you know, uh, non-college educated people are getting a lot of these jobs. But there's also the sort of the macroeconomic component of Bidenomics, at least before inflation rates were, you know, dramatic, uh, sorry, uh, inflation rates went up um, from 2021 onwards. The whole idea was that we are going to increase union density through our legislative push, but we're also going to structurally improve the bargaining conditions for labor because the bargaining power of workers goes way up if the government is actively trying to run a full employment um, and is committed to full employment sort of macroeconomic policy. So, you know, Biden in in a big speech in, I think, the budget speech in 2021, he says, you know, instead of workers competing with each other for jobs that are scarce, we want employers to compete with each other to attract work. We want companies to try and attract workers uh, with higher wages. So that's their sort of push to, yes, we can't perhaps increase union density in specific sectors, but we are going to increase or reduce the pool of unemployed workers. And that reduces a company's sort of bargaining power. And when you have that kind of competition, then workers can move to places with um, higher wages. And, you know, that was complemented by during the, uh, during the CARES package and the ERP, sort of larger and more generous unemployment insurance of $400 per unemployed worker per week. Um, and that therefore allowed people to leave shitty jobs, especially in the retail um, uh, sectors, and, and, and move to sort of higher productivity, higher value added, better, safer, more stable jobs so in that's in that sense they've tried to at least like increase unemployment um, uh, so you know at this point we have you know i think the lowest unemployment rate in about 30 or 40 years it's it's under three percent or or um just around there and that is a structural improvement um for for labor ted
3: i think it it's There's a couple of different theories that you hear articulated. And there's two in particular that sometimes get collapsed, but are actually distinct. And to be honest, I don't know which one uh, the Biden people uh, actually subscribe to. But so one theory is that it is a theory of Democratic Party majorities, right? So you, you deliver investments, you deliver jobs. The the Democratic-controlled federal government is seen seen to be the author of those investments and those jobs. People credit uh, Democratic policymaking with improvements in their lives, and they vote for Democrats. Another theory is almost, in a sense, the political opposite of that, which is about locking in the policy, but not necessarily focusing on the electoral outcomes. Um, And so there, the idea is that whether or not red state voters or red district voters continue to vote for Republicans. The flow of benefits uh, and and investments into those districts, right, and those states uh, will make it extremely awkward for Republican elected officials to to try to cut off the flow of funds, right, because they will have created um, beneficiaries. And there's a broader thing here that goes to Daniela's uh, core point about de risking, which, which I think is actually. I don't know how explicit we on the left were about this at the time, but I think it's you don't have to scratch very, very far uh, below the surface to get to to this basic idea, which is that we always thought that climate policy required the building up of a green capital sector that would be able to exercise political power, at least partially to offset the power of fossil capital within within U.S. political economy. I mean, and, and here's where the U.S. Europe, you know, maybe the single biggest difference between the U.S. and Europe when it comes to uh, political economy of the, uh, of climate, right, is, as Tim said at the outset, the U.S. is the biggest fossil fuel producer in the world. Um, Our fossil fuel lobby is absolutely gigantic. Um, And so I, I think, you know, even people on the left understood that part of what needed, part of what was going to happen if we were going to lock in climate policy uh, was that you were going to grow some green capital sectors that were then going to become uh, advocates for it. And so then you get into the political economy, the the sort of geographic political economy of that, right, which is that you need, as as the as U.S. defense spending uh, has mastered over over many decade, decades, right? You need beneficiaries in every single congressional district in the country. So you'll see Biden people or Biden adjacent people um, celebrating the fact that some of the biggest uh, investments have gone to some of the not just red but the reddest districts, right? Which have absolutely no hope of flipping. Uh, but I think the idea is that it'll be difficult to to undo what's been done in future uh, in future administration. I'll say I was personally surprised uh, by the the extent to which the Republicans prioritized completely gutting the IRA in their um, uh, debt ceiling standoff bill now how much of that was just they're trying to score political points and when we get you know we get to a world where Republicans are actually governing like do they go at it with the same ferocity or do they have misgivings as they don't want to kill the goose that laid the golden egg or whatever. I, I don't know. But but there's definitely that wager. And and it just just to be clear, right, those are two very different logics, the logic of lock in the policy, regardless of what happens with the politics and the logic of build the electoral majority that can that can that can sustain it. And, and I really do think that they, they they sometimes think both and they haven't necessarily decided which one is actually driving the strategy.
0: And what's your assessment as to whether either of those strategies will work?
3: Um I think it's, uh, (laughs) it it remains to be seen. I mean, one thing I have definitely, I'm just in my own work doing a lot to try to figure out how we implement the IRA on the ground in ways that will be really visible to people. Uh, I've been doing a lot of work around um, the buildings sector, right? And how we go about the process of decarbonizing people's homes, right? And there is money in the IRA for that. There's various programs in the IRA for that. Some are better than others. And it does seem to me like it is going to be a very complicated proposition to um, the extent to which people experience anything that's happening in their own homes, in their communities, in their neighborhoods, as something that is a function of these exercises in policymaking. Like, there's a naive theory about how that works, which I think is probably not correct. Um, But there may be versions of it which are just blunt force um, and and could have a big impact. So, for example, I'm thinking of... um, you know, as part of the Chip Act, CHIPS Act, one of the big investments is Micron, the semiconductor company, uh, is going to be building a massive facility outside of Syracuse, New York. And, uh, you know, I, I've heard estimates of, you know, I mean, obviously it's company propaganda, so take it with a grain of salt. But, you know, over 20 years, they're going to pour something like $50 billion into the Syracuse area. There may be something like 10,000 jobs when, you know, all in. And, in a, you know, in Syracuse is a city of 100 and change thousand people. It's absolutely, you know, a place that was massively hit by deindustrialization, especially uh, in, in the 2000s. Is that going to be seen as a federal investment that changes the life conditions of, of, of that community as a whole? That's a very contested congressional district. Does it affect the marginal voters decision about how to vote? I think that could be we could look at that as a kind of bellwether um, about uh, at least that version of the theory.
0: Yeah, that's an interesting point because I'm I'm skeptical as to whether or or at least to what extent you can build a new material basis for a new democratic majority just through investment. I think if we look back to the New Deal period, it wasn't just econ- like objective economic growth or rising wages, it was also the prevalence of unions, these intermediary organizations that helped people make collective political sense of the economic situation. And so I think I think it does rest on this investment question, but also on the unionization question, which we've been discussing and depends on biodynamics, but also on all these other factors.
3: And, and those um, weren't the only institutions, right? Rural electric co-ops, right, for right. example. Right. I mean, a lot of rural America was solidly democratic for several generations, and that was in part both the investments and the institutional fabric that was created by some of the New Deal interventions. So but, but absolutely take your take your point.
0: Daniela.
1: If I can just respond to to this theory that if you build up green capital, particularly in in states that are Republican, then you create some political lock-in. And I think the experience of Spain, I was just reading this morning a a post on on the experience of Spain with de-risking solar industries in the early 2000s or late 1990s, early 2000s. And I think it was driven by the same logic, right? So you had feed-in tariffs, which is a form of de-risking that guarantees a, a certain price, and what do you the the consequence of that was the, the conditions of for the risking and for the, the 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 carrots for private investment were so attractive that Spain found itself with a kind of disorderly expansion of of green solar capital and as the um, political cycle turned and a new a new government came in what they did was to basically reduce the amount of of carrots that were given to to uh, the solar industry uh, and that led basically to a crash so. In the in the future where uh, a new administration might reduce, and I, I don't know to what extent this is possible, but in the future where the carrots are, are reassigned or re, redesigned because the macro financial constraints and the, and the po- politics of those constraints change, then we might see exactly what happened in, in Spain in the early 2000s and what threatens to happen again, because Spain is going back to trying to become a, a, a solar powerhouse, given the, some of the a fiscal space that the next generation EU and other Euro, um, kind of common European fiscal resources are, are creating, but that is to me the problem of of relying on on building political coalitions is through the risking is that they are also vulnerable to changes in in the in in politics. I understand that the alternatives are even more difficult politically difficult to to uh, construct, but the, the experience that we have in Europe of using this kind of de-risking approaches to building uh, private solar capital uh, can very quickly run into into fiscal constraints. Hi,
3: this is Olufemi Taiwo, and you're listening to The Dig. You can support the podcast
0: at patreon.com. This episode of The Dig is brought to you by our listeners who support us at patreon.com and by Verso Books, which has loads of great left-wing titles, perfect for DIG listeners like you. One that you might like is Travelers of the World Revolution, A Global History of the Communist International by Brigitte Stula. The Communist International was the first organized attempt to bring about worldwide revolution and left a lasting mark on 20th century history. The book offers a new and fascinating account of this transnational organization founded in 1919 by Lenin and Trotsky and dissolved by Stalin in 1943, telling the story through the eyes of the activists who became its professional revolutionaries. Studa follows such figures as Willy Munzenberg, Mikhail Borodin, M.N. Roy, and Evelyn Trent, Tina Modotti, Agnes Smedley, and many others less well-known, as they are dispatched to the successive political hotspots of the 1920s and 30s, from revolutionary Berlin to Baku, from Shanghai to Spain, from Nazi Germany to Stalin's Moscow. It traces their journeys from revolutionary hope to accommodation, defeat, or death, looking at questions of motivation and commitment, agency and negotiation, of life and love, conflict and frustration. Travelers of the World Revolution, A Global History of the Communist International, by Brigetta Studa, out now from Verso Books. We keep touching on fossil capital... And the rollout of green energy, which we've been focusing so much on in this discussion, of course, is only half the energy transition. We must also just stop burning fossil fuels as soon as possible. But the Biden administration, including through the IRA, has in many cases ramped up fossil fuel production. What are the Bidenomics tools, if any, to deal with ramping down, ending fossil fuel production? Tim? Tim?
2: So we've had a shale boom for the last 15 years. It started out in 2008 and it has dramatically changed um, the United States from being a net energy consumer to a net energy producer and exporter. And inside the shale boom, there's this big fight between the big boys and the small fry that are called sort of the wildcatters. And the wildcatters, you know, largely in the Permian Basin, elsewhere, as soon as price, um, energy prices would go up, they would start producing more and more and would bring energy prices down into what was called the shale band of roughly $40 a barrel to $70 a barrel. So if it went above 70, they would start overproducing more and they would start bringing the price back down. So as soon as the Ukraine invasion happens, uh, and actually as soon as we have like a huge, huge crash uh, with COVID, uh, there's, the industry just kind of reorganizes and the small fry sort of get gobbled up by the big fish. And that really meant that from then on, as when oil prices rose, production doesn't go up. So this is the first time that has really happened over the course of the shale boom. So we had this crazy period where the Biden administration was very worried before the midterms uh, last year that they would lose the midterms because of energy price inflation, gas prices at the pump going up. And they run around begging the industry to increase production. And the industry basically says, no, thanks. Like, we want to earn some money. We want to take all the cash that we are earning and plow it back into dividends for our shareholders and not put it into new production. Yeah. And that's because the industry structure had changed during COVID. And so we, we we now have a much more consolidated industry where the big majors share the interests of sort of not pre- preventing production from going up in line with prices, and they are earning uh, much, much fatter profits as a result. And within the U.S., you know, a lot of progressives tried to push for an energy windfall tax after the war began, that we should take some of these excess profits and we should use that. We should tax them away from the energy companies and put it into renewables, put it into free buses, put it into sort of some things that consumers can see uh, lowering their energy bills or green appliances that they could be given, et cetera, et cetera. And the industry just like fought back. And uh, you know you need 50 Senate votes for 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 a, for a new tax, and you just simply couldn't get those. Uh, whereas in other countries, particularly in Europe, um, you know the Italian government, the UK government, a bunch of other places actually did pass an energy windfall tax, a penalty against fossil fuel producers. And I I just found it you know really remarkable that if we just had a few more votes inside the Senate, maybe the United States could have passed a big. Uh, profits windfall tax and at least like tried to take away some of those fossil fuel profits, which are now basically being plowed into sort of political dollars uh, to further entrench the oil and gas industry. Daniela?
1: I I want maybe again to disagree with Tim on how we understand the uh, sticks or penalties because to me, a winful tax on excessive profits in the oil industry following the Russian invasion of Ukraine is not a penalty in the way that Europe, the European decarbonization model had envisaged penalties. And, and I want to bring here, a, I want to, to also stress a bit what I think are some of the negative externalities of Bidenomics that have emphasized carrots so much for the the, the domestic politics reasons we have explored. But in Europe, before uh, Bidenomics we had an approach uh, starting from around 2017, 2018, that explicitly wanted to combine carrots for sustainable activities, with ticks or to discipline and penalize uh, fossil capital particularly through ce- central banks and i want to bring central banks in not just because they are my favorite you know policy actors and we we rarely mention them when we talk about industrial policy although the the macroeconomic implications of what central banks do have a significant bearing on you know the the pace of of green industrial uh, policy and so what the European central banks, both the Bank of England and the European and the ECB, had done in this before by the NoMics is to say we need the state to take active steps to shrink uh, certain sectors. We cannot wait for this logic of the risking. You know where you make private renewable energy more price. More attractive, more investable, and then you know fossil fuels will simply kind of the market process will push them out you no know, in in Europe, we had central banks designing frameworks. To penalise dirty capital, we had a sustainable finance taxonomy that that the European Commission put in place to differentiate between, well, at least to first identify what were green activities, and then to we we were supposed to have a dirty taxonomy that would identify dirty activities. And the European Central Bank had a a climate um, strategy that said uh, climate uh, is within our um, mandate of price stability, because, you know, climate crisis can have financial stability aspects, but also because what the financial sector does, it can amplify the climate crisis by lending to fossil fuels. And there was a very sophisticated framework that it's still there, although it kind of completely been emptied of any meaningful action since Bidenomics became so such a uh, strong political force uh, outside the U.S and the logic was you know if you have fossil fuel bonds that you uh, hold in your portfolio as a financial uh, entity we will penalize the holding of these bonds and you can you can structure the, those penalties in a way that both signal to markets that the price of dirty credit should be much higher than it is and also you completely eliminate from your um, from your monetary policy operations the subsidies to carbon credit and in Europe we had i don't know whether this is something that you hear in in u s policy debates or, or in u s central banking debates, but in Europe we had central bankers saying that that monetary policy provides subsidies to dirty fuels to to fossil fuels to dirty activities, and this should stop, and it is the responsibility of the state to stop it by imposing penalties to shrink the sector. This is very revolutionary for central banks that usually don't want to intervene or don't want to be seen as intervening in the allocation of capital. But that's what we had from very conservative central banks two years ago, three years ago. So to me, I think the, the the, the question of the relationship with fossil capital is not only how powerful fossil capital is although it turned out to be very uh, very powerful, also how powerful the financial capital behind it behind it can be because BlackRock was very, lobbying so heavily the European Commission and the ECB that we all knew about it, it was, uh, you know, usually lobbying activities, you have to be a TED or a team to have work very closely to work out uh, all the uh, lobbying details, not an academic like myself, but we all knew about BlackRock because it was really panicky that the European states through their central banks were all of a sudden developing, you know, this muscle that said, I don't want any capital or very little capital there. And I'm going to use my powers as, as the state to stop it from going there, to make it a lot more expensive. So, yes, this is to me the place we were.
0: Daniela, a quick follow-up question. How did Bi- dynamics disrupt that trend in European policy making that, that you just described? And did it just cause them to prioritize competition and seeking a share for... European companies of the the emerging green tech market
1: i read it as by provided the political backing and more momentum to the lobbyists opposing the, the uh, penalty based climate regulation in europe because every every company that you know not only fossil fuels but companies that were suppo- that would come under some penalties for their dirty activities they could go to brussels or to the national capital and say oh you know what guys we're moving to the us look at what they are what the amount of carrots they are giving us where you're you're all here dishing sticks through regulation. So what you heard in, when you hear, we heard in Brussels or in Berlin or in Frankfurt concerns about, you know, what is the U.S., what is the US IRA going to mean it's not only private capital that spoke you know through the through the voices of state officials but but to some extent it was also a concern that you cannot it is much more difficult politically to stay on course with a much stronger decar- decarbonization framework that penalizes uh, private capital when Everybody is shouting that you will just move to the U.S., which I think is what happened.
0: So they were in the process of being disciplined and then they pointed to the U.S. and said, hey, we want bottomless mimosas, too.
1: Yes. Yeah. We was like, why, why is the U.S. opening a bar and you are giving us sticks, <laughs> basically? And then the Europeans said, well, we'll not open a bar because the Germans don't like bars. But at least we won't do the sticks anymore. So we are in the worst of all worlds. We have no, no bottomless mimosa, and we, we have no sticks. Or no discipline?
2: Tim? Just one on kind of fossil fuel subsidies, right? So fossil fuel subsidies, because most of our energy comes from fossil fuels, so almost like they just received the lion's share of subsidies. So when we are talking about, you know, companies not getting enough sort of green tax credits in in Europe, what they got instead was a massive amount of energy subsidies, because the European energy shock was much much larger than the American energy shock, right? So Europe was spending about twelve percent of its GDP compared to before the war, around two or three percent of its GDP on energy, and that mass that massive amount of spending was largely done by the government by the government doing deficit spending to put money into companies' pockets and into people's pockets to lower and defray their energy bills. And when you added it all up across the countries in Europe, it came up to more than 800 billion euros of subsidies, of subsidies largely towards fossil fuel, because that's just the structure of the energy market. 800 billion euros of subsidy in one year, right? If you add up all of the Congressional spending from the IRA. That amounts to, you know, according to the CBO, about $40 billion a year or about $400 billion for the decade. So the U.S. is dishing out subsidies, you know, the bottomless mimosas of about $40 billion a year. The Europeans are dishing out 800 billion euros in one calendar year, largely for fossil fuels, largely to the companies and to uh, to to, uh, to households. And so in that sense, like the amount of subsidies being pushed out, you know, because of the blowback or the backlash from the war was enormous. And, and, and that's one of the reasons why uh, in Europe, uh, you know, they basically tried to switch from any more or any more regulations towards a new carrot based approach, because they are now really reckoning with the fact that the fossil fuel system is extremely expensive for the government and for households and for everybody else and the amount of blowback that comes, the political blowback that comes as societies boil with these high prices, the government just has to step in and give more subsidies.
3: Can I just jump in? I think the the geopolitics of energy are a really important thing to understand in relationship to Bidenomics and to all the th- things that we've been talking about. So. You know I think that in 2020, uh, when Biden was running for president in early 2021 when they were initially laying out their legislative priorities, their their, their agenda, there was a lot that was in, uh, intended to discipline the fossil sector, right? I mean there were pretty there were very explicit commitments about you know no new leases. there were uh, explicit commitments about eliminating uh, all manner of fossil fuel subsidies. You know, they were probably not ever imagining actually shutting down existing production. But again, I mentioned the clean energy payments program that more or less would have made it so prohibitively expensive for the power sector to uh, to burn fossil fuels um, that it would have shut down many coal plants and even natural gas plants uh, across the country. That very little of that remains right Uh, come 2022, 2023. And part of that is Manchin, who is dug in in his opposition to uh, anything that will threaten fossil interests from the start. He is, after all, one of the only Democratic senators uh, who represents a fossil heavy state, not the only one, but but probably the one who's, I think the one whose state depends most heavily on, on fossil for employment and tax revenue. But then it also is, is affected by the Ukraine war, in, in, a, in but in some paradoxical ways. So on the one hand, some of the things that Tim uh, mentioned uh, in terms of how the Biden administration suddenly Uh, in the context of inflation, especially energy price inflation, is desperate to see more oil, especially oil, but also gas getting produced uh, to bring down prices and so to not have to suffer the political blowback uh, from inflation. Uh, But also it affects Manchin's thinking in ways that don't often get discussed. But he's pretty clear in the summer of 2022 that the Ukraine war actually pushes him to ultimately support what becomes the IRA. Um, And the reason is the logic of energy security. So the exposure of the U.S. economy and and the energy sector in particular uh, to price shocks driven by geopolitical developments elsewhere in the world leads him to the perspective of we need, you know, all in, right? We need all of the above energy strategy. Um, And that includes uh, various inducements to the continued production and even expansion of fossil fuels. So he negotiates some real nasty things in the IRA, right, that probably the most the nastiest provision in the whole bill uh, may be the piece that ties new leases on public lands and waters of renewables to new leases on public lands and waters of, of fossil uh, uh, exploration. And so he gets those in there. He gets his pipeline stuff in this in this side deal. Uh, but he also says yes, we absolutely need a massive rollout of clean energy, because that also is part of our overall uh, energy security strategy. And at least from what I see, it's not clear that Manchin ever would have gotten to yes on the clean energy parts of it, if not for the shock to U.S. energy markets that happens uh, in in the early part of 2022 in, in response to the Ukraine war. So in that sense, the the geopolitical developments have a huge impact, but also in in paradoxical and maybe to some extent in, in quite unpredictable ways.
0: I want to talk about where public ownership fits into this all, both in terms of Bidenomics and then where does it fit in your slash our vision. Melanie Bruceler writes, quote, private asset ownership and market coordination cannot perform this synchronized dance of investment and divestment, nor bear the cost of maintaining excess capacity. And quote, a boom in private renewable projects will not on its own orchestrate a planned buildout. Even with subsidization, private actors are still only likely to invest in sufficiently profitable projects, not coherent system-wide renewable build-out. Why is public ownership important, not just in terms of it being a part of the principle of, of economic democracy that we all believe in, but why is it important concretely for achieving decarbonization and a just energy transition? And then are there ways that all these carrots and sticks or carrots versus sticks that we've been discussing, that they can be deployed in such a way that puts us on a path towards Socializing a growing share of this capital—a way, a way to publicly coordinate private capital. Since we live under capitalism, that moves us down the path to more public ownership.
3: I mean, I think it's a really incredibly important question, for better or for worse. I think it wasn't one that was super front of mind for most people when the agenda of Bidenomics was taking shape, and not just among the people in the administration and in Congress. Uh, but among progressives and 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 in the sort of broader left progressive organizational ecosystem, uh, not that people didn't desire it, but it wasn't necessarily the thing that people uh, put as the most as the must have. You know, I think the obvious part of the the IRA that maybe can contribute to public ownership is the the direct pay provisions that we uh, that we mentioned earlier. Which uh, and I think we're we're seeing a lot of local and state officials around the country. Um, starting to become aware of that opportunity and getting really interested in how do we, uh, how can they take advantage of it? And how can they take advantage of it, not just to own a couple of assets, but also to create institutions that can engage in the building of more of those assets over time. Um, I think that's one of the exciting kind of post IRA terrains of struggle for us is, uh, you know, on the left is working to build those institutions in that capacity and, and and to increase the role of public ownership to your broader question about its its necessity i mean yeah i think that melanie's piece is is excellent and and puts the problem really well it's clear that you need to deliver benefits to people to build a political coalition for decarbonization um and it seems pretty clear to me at least that the way you do that is mostly on the the so-called demand side of things right uh increasing the attractiveness of clean energy and of, of of electrification and and of other things like that showing the benefits in terms of cleaner air Uh, in terms of lower utility prices, um, in terms of upgraded and more efficient equipment, all all those sorts of things, in terms of jobs, obviously. But that alone is not going to move us on the sort of timeline uh, that we need to, there's Paris goals, but there's the reality of of, of the acceleration of the climate crisis. And it seems pretty hard to fathom that without the public balance sheet playing a really aggressive role, that we're going to be able to tackle things like the exposure of so many communities across the country to uh, increased flood risk, and what that does to insurance markets, and what that does to home prices—much less that we're going to be able to gradually, ultimately, over time, decommission um, much of the fossil infrastructure uh, that we have in this in this country and around the world—and—and and if you assume, as I do, that that's basically inevitable—that some point down the road those things have to happen—you know, there's a version of it where the public just ends up absorbing everything as those companies go bankrupt, as homeowners lose their shirts, and it's just picking up the mess in this, the worst kind of de-risking kind of way, uh, which is the the literal socialization of all the losses, right? Um, Or there may be ways to do it more proactively that cost less, that are more equitable in various ways that are less random and less reactive. Um, And and it's pretty hard to imagine doing that without the public sector um, in a much more assertive, much more directive role. And, And whether that requires ownership explicitly, or uh sticks of a more aggressive sort of the, of the types that Daniela has uh has talked about I assume that there's a range of those things of those types of practices and and sort of instrumentalities that we'll ultimately need but we're going to need more than what we've got right now
0: Daniela
1: the Commonwealth, uh, where Melanie uh, is now, has another report that makes, uh, I think, a persuasive case even for for fiscal hawks. The kind of fiscal uh, fiscal hawks that are kind of circling everywhere, not just in the U.S. but here in the U.K. or or in Europe. There is a persuasive case that uh, that public ownership, particularly of uh, in in the energy sector is cheaper uh, than 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 the risking uh, private energy or private renewables, and we've seen that in in the UK where we have a very significant share of. Of renewable energy uh, through contracts uh, for difference, created through contracts for difference and other kind of de risking arrangements, and we still had very significant price shocks and a cost of living crisis that, in part, reflected very high and uh, fossil fuel prices linked to the to the Russian invasion of Ukraine. So, so there is a kind of short term fiscal hawk case to be made for public ownership, and then there is the long term. Orderly uh, transition and orderly decarbonization case to be made, not just for public ownership, but but for a whole re, wholesale change in the macro financial regime that we have. So I don't think public ownership is enough. I think it's necessary. I think it's politically very difficult at the moment, but we also need a change in the way that. Uh, that we think about the state's balance sheet where, where the state will have to, by necessity, will have to have a much larger balance sheet that it has at the moment. And for that, it will need a central bank that works uh, with a very different logic of, of coordination uh, with the state. That includes also, and that is a necessity, I think, also because we have to uh, remind ourselves that we need to shrink certain sectors. And what we have at the moment, in my view, is a disorderly expansion in both green capital and fossil capital for the reasons uh, that uh, Ted explained that are linked to the Russian invasion of Ukraine. And what we don't have enough of is building institutional capacity for the state to either discipline private capital into climate uh, uh, strategies or to organize itself, right? Because this is something that we haven't discussed yet, but I am wondering what happens when, you know, the political uh, conditions are right for a big green state, who will do it? Right. You need capacity. a lot of technocratic capacity for that to happen. It, it doesn't come out of nowhere. And under what conditions can you have such a large financial system, a globalized financial system with a kind of exposures on their balance sheet that will generate stranded assets? I mean, this is a much lo- broader conversation to me about about can we pull a nationalization of certain pension funds like some governments that I will not name in Europe for political reasons have done. I mean, it's, it's very big. It's not just, you know, one... If we have a publicly owned... Uh, energy company in New York uh, will everything uh, kind of all of a sudden fall into place. I think the the, the wholesale rethink of the uh, of reorganization of our macro financial architecture is 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 very necessary and politically. I cannot think that is possible at the moment. But who knows what what the world looks like in five years from now?
2: Yeah, yeah. I'll just make one quick point in public ownership, which is we already have a lot of control. By we, I mean the public has a lot of control over the energy sector, which has been right from the start has been seen as something that needs to be stable and orderly, and cheap and affordable. Because if it gets disrupted, it disrupts not just consumers but industries and the entire sort of social and political order. In some sense, if energy becomes too expensive, um, and so we regulate the prices. And we regulate the electric utility um, industry via, you know, a public commission that's set up a rate setting commission that allows companies a certain profit margin. But in return, they have to agree to a particular price. And uh, the public literally has to sort of give a check off to the types of capital investments they're allowed to do in any five or 10 year period. To keep expanding generation or, 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 or renewable assets, so in that sense, that we already have a framework around which the public gets a say in price setting, even if we don't do the full public ownership. These are extremely important places for public pressure and political pressure to be brought on bear uh, to, to be brought to bear on the public utility commissions. And then on the sort of the broader macro financial sort of ways in which we can reduce prices and have price ceilings and floors, we do that, for instance, with government bonds, right? The government is the biggest purchaser and the seller and the issuer of bonds. So it maintains price ceilings and price floors in many places. And similarly for energy, we, you know, when, we, when Biden says he's going to use the Strategic Petroleum Reserve to unload oil and gas to prevent prices from going up too high that's that's a huge publicly owned cave in texas that is filled with oil and is stored there and when prices go up we, you know we inject brine into the uh, into the cave and lift up the oil and dump it into the world market so these are ways in which the public owns significant pieces or has very many tools to control prices and is heavily involved in the energy sector, and and I think what public ownership means is bringing all of these tools in one institution, rather than locking them away in these separate siloed places um, that are then vulnerable to capture by industry, and, uh, under controlled energy transition.
1: Can I can I just add? Uh, I mean, in I in the, in this paper that that kind of informs some of the arguments that I've made around the the Biden economics as, as de-risking. I also talk about the use of monetary de-risking by central banks to intervening government bond markets to basically preserve their investability for private finance. I would say that, team, maybe that's where we kind of disagree, because at the moment I don't see any central bank except for the Bank of Japan, who is a very special case, and it's not the time to discuss it here. But no other central bank is explicitly controlling or fixing prices. It's just making sure that in moments of tension, the liquidity stays there and is there for investors to not run away so we do have some architecture of the risking that could be scaled up but into something more more of a state led decarbonization or and under or or supporting a very extended public ownership and a much larger bigger green state but at the moment that is just an architecture that is used for the risking purposes i, I think i'm very clear on that and I am bracketing Japan for a lot of reasons here.
0: Tim, do you want a brief response?
2: Yeah, I think it is it is largely in crises and when it comes in crises, it's largely used to just put a floor under prices so that they don't go too, too down and there's no ceiling mechanism. So prices keep rising, private sector keeps getting most of the gains of those assets, but the public sector comes in to put a floor and, and this is this is not this is not well uh yeah. It's it's not there in non crisis use.
0: Let's talk in some detail about China and what many, of course, are calling a new cold war with with Bidenomics seeking to deny certain advanced semiconductor technology to China, create battery battery supply chains that exclude China sourced components and critical minerals, and just more generally to check economic China's economic development and military power. Jake Sullivan in this much noted speech he just gave on the new Washington consensus. He described this new approach with China as a departure from the globalization optimist assumption that, quote, bringing countries into the rules-based order would incentivize them to adhere to the rules, which seems like he's talking about Thomas Friedman's argument that <laughs> that no two countries with a McDonald's had gone to war with each other. But what's the real U.S. problem with China? Because it seems that it's not illiberalism or authoritarianism. Saudi Arabia and Israel, after all, both have McDonald's and their their behavior doesn't really bother the U.S. The concern, again, is China. Why that concern? And when did China become perceived as so threatening? When did it become such a bipartisan norm to perceive China's rise as an almost existential threat to the U.S.? And then lastly, and Daniela, you mentioned this earlier, what sort of state is China? Because the U.S. has justified its new model by arguing that China wasn't playing by the rules. So we need kind of to make new rules that will let the U.S. compete with China. Is China a de-risking state? Is it a big green state or something else entirely?
3: I, I like how you put the question, what's what's the real, the real China problem? So first thing I think is important to note is that and you see this in all the speeches, right? There is a very significant element of self-critique among the policymaking elite when it comes to how they talk about China. And it is along these lines that there was this optimism. The the, the theory variously went under various names, but uh, a popular one was convergence, right? That as China was uh, integrated into the global economic order, uh, most you know most sort of significantly through its uh, accession to the World Trade Organization you know which was finalized in 2001 um as china liberalized in economic terms that its political system would also open up and it would also liberalize and there's different reasons about this uh, our friends jake werner and uh and, and toby chow for for example argue that that was actually happening for a period of time uh, in the 2000s and early 2010s i think that's that's there's there's debates about that but in any event that was the theory and the us believed therefore that china could be integrated as a node in the global economy that remained fully subordinate to the U.S. in geopolitical terms, just as, you know, after World War II, Japan and Germany were uh, integrated into a U.S.-led global order uh, in which they variously competed with the U.S. economically, but were fully subordinate to it uh, militarily and geopolitically. And I think there was there's a self-critique that runs on two on two levels. So the one on, on the economic level. It's you really can't overstate the significance of the China shock literature on the thinking of these people. Um, they cite it by name in a way that you just never.
0: David, David Autor is, is, is cited.
3: Yeah. <laughs> they cited by name in a way you never see policymakers cite academic literature. But these are the most mainstream of mainstream economists, right, labor economists who documented pretty, you know, uh, pretty powerfully. I don't know. Not everyone's convinced, but powerfully that um, the opening to China uh, starting in 2001. Um, did in fact decimate American manufacturing, um, That it was, and that it was very geographically specific, right? And then in a short paper that I don't know that they ever actually followed up on, right after the 2016 election, they showed that those counties and those uh, metropolitan statistical areas that had seen the heaviest import penetration from China were also places that seemed to flip towards the Republicans. So there was a sense that the opening up to China had had much more significant domestic economic consequences than anybody had anticipated in the 90s and early 2000s when this was being done. Um, and that it had been political consequences, that that it really there was a direct correlation and, and causative effect between that and, and Trumpism. The other thing is that, you know, by their lights, uh, China becomes much more assertive uh, geopolitically and militarily you know, people date it to different moments. Some people say, you know, immediately in the wake of the 2008 crisis, as the U.S. seems rather hobbled uh, by the collapse of the housing market, whereas China pulls off this, you know, frankly, world historic stimulus program, mass building program, and the investment of the Chinese state actually basically floats the entire world economy for about a decade. So some people see it connected to the immediate post-crisis moment. Some people see it to more of the, the moment at which Xi Jinping consolidates power within the Chinese political system and seems to author a new, much more statist uh, economic policy, the so-called warrior diplomacy, the practices of, you know, I mean, there are quite easily documented in- instances of economic coercion where, where China uh, decides to punish uh, other countries whose diplomatic maneuvers China doesn't like with certain economic measures, boycotts and the like. Uh, so there's a perception across the U.S. political elite, certainly by, I would say, 2018, that something has changed in China. And the theory that China would, quote unquote, converge in, into this, you know, harmoniously into this U.S.-led economic order was just comprehensively discarded. And once it was di- discarded, I mean, they really flipped on a dime, right? And they went from seeing China as potentially a benign partner to uh, to, to active threat. And the last thing I would say is that, you know, so so China poses a, I think there are genuine conflicts of interest between the US and China when you look at, at things like Taiwan and the broader sort of, you know, East Asia security questions and mil- questions of military alliances and so on and so forth. Uh, but the other piece that that's really important for them, and this connects back to climate, um, is that they watched, uh, or by two, 2021, people had woken up in the United States, to to the realization that China was absolutely dominant in key manufacturing sectors. So, right, for a long time, people thought China, oh, they only do the low-end assembly stuff, uh, but all the cutting edge, uh, all the industries of the future, uh, all the high-value-added stuff is still located in the global north and especially in the U.S. Uh, But suddenly, China controls 90% of markets for solar panels uh, and basically the entire solar supply chains. that controls the critical minerals, dominates the battery supply chain, And all of a sudden, the U.S., the policymaking elite, realizes that we are going to have this energy transition one way or another. There is going to be a massive replacement of machines across the globe. And they're really freaked out that China is going to absolutely dominate all of those industries and all of those future markets. Um, And so they have a problem with China, I think, in that they want the U.S. and European countries, although they've gotten there slower, um, to, they want some of those industries uh, to be located in their own in their home countries producing for their domestic markets, but also competing with china uh, in in what they anticipate to be the booming export markets of the future danielle
1: i i just want to i think this is a to my mind a very convincing analysis of why why the u s or or the, how, the dynamics of the changing u s china relationship. And in particular, the, the realization of U.S. elites that China's very clever industrial strategy, particularly in clean tech, uh, was basically threatening to displace the hegemony position of the U.S. And But I, I would say in Europe, there is also, I want to emphasize, there is also an ideological dimension to it, or there was an ideological dimension to the extent that Europe had, had, had faced this same concern, for longer, because in the 2000s we saw various uh, solar industries in Germany or in Spain affected quite uh, significantly by, by the Chinese state's ability to scale up manufacturing of, of clean tech and and the response used to be you know it doesn't matter because in the end uh, what we want is the, the market to work so there was some commitment to globalization ideologically that was powerful and is still powerful in some european corners and and if you look for example at the recent attempts to mimic and, and emulate uh, by the in the in the european union the the framework is markets used to work well and but then the chinese, the massive chinese industrial policy is distorting market signals in clean tech and therefore we have to distort do the distortions ourselves because there is no other way to to square that circle uh, and we can both not not compete with china on on market basis and we cannot for energy security reasons we cannot afford to basically allow these uh, uh, imports of Chinese technology. And you see that China, to some extent, is, is starting to retaliate on, on clean tech. Whether whether this will how this will uh, evolve, I'm I'm not quite sure. I would, on on the question of the way in which China managed to get there, I think there is there are a couple of academics working on it, and and, and maybe one day they will be cited by the U.S. Uh, administrations. But for the moment, there is a combination of big green state and and risking there because the Chinese uh, state and the internal market is as such that you can scale up lots of things and you can play with lots of things in ways that. That were not poss- That are not possible in in smaller countries. But just to remind, also to remind ourselves that the European model, in general, for prioritizing cheap solar, was, I mean, there was a there there, there was also the ideal, the the very material point that there are lots of European companies in China. So it's not, you know, the Chinese state doesn't, in isolation, kind of erupt on the international scene and threaten U.S. hegemony. But there were very significant profits to be made by being located in China for a very long time, and many European and U.S. corporations defended that arrangement, which they cannot do now, for reasons that I'm not an expert in. But let's remember that uh, it it wasn't it's not just a a story of nation states. It's also a story of global capitalism, globalization, and financial globalization. Here, this is what I wanted to say.
0: <laughs> Ho, Ho Feng Hung in his more recent book about about China makes an argument about how it was China acting less favorably to U.S. based corporations that caused American corporations to secede from the pro-China coalition, thus allowing for this decisive shift in U.S. policy. Um, anyhow, but what should we make of the role played by this new Cold War, if we're indeed living through one? What should we make of it, it? its key role in motivating this new U.S. green industrial policy? Because during the Trump years, I recall that Green New Deal advocates were really pushing for a wartime, wartime-style level of mobilization, but definitely without an actual war. Is it indeed rather depressing? that ultimately geopolitical comp- competition simultaneously economic and military that's veering dangerously close to armed conflict that is this motive that is proven to be so essential for the anti-war anti-imperialist internationalist left what sort of terrain of struggle does this render this new industrial policy given the really serious though still frankly like incomprehensible threat of outright war and then lastly if one exists what what might a stable geoeconomic and geopolitical settlement with China, what might that look like? And then we'll go to the global south.
3: I would I would say, I, I would not use the word dis- depressing. I would use the word disquieting. It, it should trouble us very deeply, is how I would begin. And, and I don't think that we can overlook it. I do think there is a tendency uh, among some progressive forces to want to see this aspect of it as somehow Ancillary in some way that you, that you could preserve everything else and somehow discard that portion of it, and I'm not sure that, that tr- that's true precisely because I, it does seem to me that the whole shift in the U.S. elite in terms of their attitudes towards China is one of the preconditions for for everything that we everything that we've seen, and I don't know what that means for us in terms of strategy, except that um, we've got to be incredibly focused on these dynamics and focused on the ways in which uh industrial policy tools might get deployed uh to ratchet up tensions uh in the international economy and uh and, and in particular in you know in geostrategic and, and and military terms um and we should oppose uh you know forcefully and forthrightly a- escalatory moves. Um, I do think it is important to oppose the the, the semiconductor export bans. Um, I think it is important to, to criticize them. I don't think that those were, in particular, were an indispensable part of the overall package. Um, they certainly weren't part of the legislation. None of the forces that came together uh, to pass the legislation uh, signed off on them necessarily, but they are an extension of it. They are clearly part of the overall strategy that the, the drivers of the U.S. state and and U.S. military and U.S. diplomatic apparatus, apparatuses are, are pursuing. So, uh, you know, I think that on the left, we are not as um, we are not as read up on these topics um, and these new uh, dimensions of, you know, you could say inter-imperial struggle uh, as we have been on um, you know the way that U.S. global power manifested itself in the 2000s, for example, and so we've got catching up to do in order to be able to, you know, oppose certain moves that that are genuinely that are genuinely dangerous. And then the other thing I would say is that I think we need to, you know, we really need to start thinking uh, very intentionally about, you know, some writers have referred to this as as order building. It doesn't seem to me that a particularly propitious direction for the left to take. Is necessarily to sort of stand in a position of negation of U.S. power. There, I just don't think there's a very big audience for that. And so instead, what we need to be talking about is the institutional architecture of international relations, of international security, of international cooperation around development and finance and all sorts of other issues. And and what we should be pushing for is that w- one simply can't imagine uh, a security order or an economic order or a, uh, or a political order globally that does not. Grant China a very significant place, right? Uh, it, there are 1.4 billion people in China, and it has the second largest economy in the world. And so, coexistence has to be the name of the game, and we have to work to develop institutional frameworks that 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 can sustain that on the on the baseline conviction that war uh, would be, you know, would would be an absolute uh, apocalyptic endpoint that we have to do everything in our in our human power to avoid.
2: Yeah, I just wanted to say that, like, there's a particular logic underpinning how, so let's say you're convinced that the, the Chinese need to be contained. If, if, you're a, if you're a part of the this U.S. elite sort of policymaking circuit that is convinced of this diagnosis, they have a particular sort of model of how to do that, of how to contain China. And they say, OK, the first element is it's technology that is driving China's economic growth and its military sort of catch up. And then the second element is China doesn't really know how to make and innovate new technology. They copy, acquire, steal it from us. So that's, that, those are sort of their two premises um, of how do they need to sort of contain China, which is why the containment of China is taking the form of preventing access to high-end technology. So when Jake Sullivan talks about these kind of high walls around a narrow garden, these narrow technologies are chips and AI and biotech and a few critical minerals, because they are somehow convinced that this tech, if China got access to these technologies, then it would become richer and more powerful. I'm not so sure if that's even the engine of Chinese economic growth and security. If it is indeed sort of high-end technology, you could argued, it has had a lot of sort of manufacturing catch up from just sort of applying the technologies of the second industrial revolution to a larger and larger set of provinces going from the coast further inland into a logistics development, into a real estate boom, et cetera, et cetera. It's not clear to me that technology is actually driving the economic growth. And then the second premise that you can easily contest is, is it actually true that China's sort of know-how is not endogenous, that they are really copying and acquiring and stealing? There may be some of that, but they've been investing in R&D like mad for the last 10 or 15 years. They've had a huge, you know, tens of thousands of engineers and scientists and doctors trained in, you know, the MITs and Stanfords of the world. And they have, they are as close to the technological frontier in many sectors, if not further from us. Um, and in that sense, China's know-how is endogenous. You could, you could remove these technologies from them. You could tell skilled chip manufacturing firms not to give them contracts. You could literally take the brains of engineers and tell them, get out of China. And they could still innovate and produce endogenously within their own country and catch up and, and create those, te- to, uh, those technological um, engines of, of future growth. So even if you believed in there, we have to contain China. It's unclear to me if this is a way of of succeeding. And obviously, it has massive risks of backlash to us. It could drive away American allies. It could slow down innovation. It could slow down climate um, investments. It could like increase the prices of of, of many goods and create um, sort of inflation for us. So this technological decoupling is an extremely broad, aggressive, and probably the most significant sort of um, step that the U.S. is taking. And it's not clear if it's going to succeed on its own terms.
0: Daniela?
1: Also, so besides... Uh, these arguments about the U, the the visions of the U.S. elites re- relative to a powerful China. I I, w- I also want to consider the possibility that, you know, China is kind of a straw man or a useful Trojan horse for a crisis of capital accumulation that provides a way out of this crisis of capital accumulation because then you can reimagine a state that is engaged in climate politics, even in countries like the U.S. You can build an, an infrastructure or an architecture of the risking that becomes bigger and bigger and then you know creates profit opportunities for for private capital and and you need you, you need um, a a straw man or you you need an adversary for for those political forces to come together and China is is very handy in the sense that uh, it Poses a serious threat to U.S. hegemony, so it is functional. Also, the the, the Chinese threat uh, as a political narrative is also functional for 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 global capital as a as a way to to try to escape a, a crisis of capital accumulation. My only worry is that um, you know this planet doesn't care about the China-U.S. conflict, and we are the acceleration of of, of extreme climate events. Will sh- will th- is throwing into very sharp relief what I think is a- is a crisis of a- a- elite thinking. We we really don't have the kind of political elites and the 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 institutional space to to imagine very radical alternatives that are better suited to to keep us all on this planet. So I don't know. I mean, to- I I recognize that it's important for the the China threat is important in the U.S., but also I think maybe. One step uh, above that is to think about, you know, capitalist accumulation.
0: The, the climate crisis is, of course, like the capitalist world system as a whole. It is a it's fundamentally global in scope. Does the IRA point toward any sort of more internationalist approach to fighting climate change? Or will the IRA and biodynamics in general, does it point towards a world system that will continue to relegate the third world to to being pillaged for primary goods in this case, in the case of the green energy transition, goods like lithium and cobalt that are required for for things like batteries, all while denying the global south the tech and capital that they need to develop and to develop on green terms. In in that new Washington consensus speech that that Jake Sullivan gave recently, he invoked the specter of a lithium or cobalt OPEC as a real bad possibility. That the Biden administration wanted to avoid, he said, "quote, clean energy supply chains are at risk of being weaponized in the same way as oil in the 1970s, which is about China, but it's also just not a good sign for how the Biden administration is thinking about cooperation with the Global South in terms of the energy transition." What, what do you all think?
2: Yeah, no, I, I, I think that there is a line. Um, so the IRA doesn't have anything explicit for. Uh, countries in the developing world right there's no there's no transfer of American taxpayer dollars is going um, to, to countries and um, uh, there it, it doesn't give like cheap money it doesn't try and reform the IMF or the World Bank. you know all of those are being done, but they're being done in other arenas not not directly in the bill that was passed. Um, and in fact, American, you know, progressives and and the Biden administration make the, the argument that anything that the US does to accelerate production of green goods will make them cheaper by going down the cost curve. And once they are cheaper, the US can then export them to developing countries uh, in the same way that China has has made these uh, green goods cheap and affordable for many countries to meet their renewable targets by purchasing Chinese-made batteries and solar panels and so on. They can do this now with American American goods. And if that's the case, then, you know, you have to do a particular policy agenda. Then you have to try and control the IP rents that these companies are going to take from intellectual uh, property that would otherwise make these goods unaffordable. So if you have driven down the cost curve domestically, how do they actually go abroad in, in the next four to eight years? Is a big open question and that, that you know, if if progressives win again and um, uh, Biden wins again in 2024, that should be something that they can do. But I think that the broader problem is just that going back to that, you know, this bill is being constrained by fiscal hawks and deficit hawks. It's not clear to me that, you know, forget the Europeans that are constrained by these made up kind of ideological rules around the debt break. Well, it's not ideological. It's a legal rule in the German constitution or sort of a legal rule of the Maastricht Treaty um, in the European Constitution, where they simply can't do deficit spending unless they change these fundamental uh, rules, stopping them from doing it. The rest of the developing countries have a much narrower fiscal space. So they have much smaller tax bases from which they could give out these tax subsidies. And their fiscal space is also very constrained by uh, you know the, the amount of dollars that they have, the balance of payments that they have, and the interest the sort of structurally much higher interest rates that they that they uh, pay to bondholders and to banks. So if you are committed to a global energy transition, you would have to find means of changing the global trading order and allowing green goods to flow without IP rents and flow frictionlessly. You'd have to reform the IMF and the World Bank to make the cost of financing cheaper and to tell the IMF and World Bank not to police the debt to GDP ratio of of developing countries, which is what constrains. Um, their their public spending, and you could imagine a you know a green progressive administration saying those things to the IMF and World Bank. Hey, let countries um, increase green spending. It's fine if their deficits balloon as long as it is for climate or pandemic or health or you know whatever progressive reasons. But that's not been the Biden administration's international agenda. Or if it is, it's they say it's we can't do these things because we are very constrained by a Republican Congress.
0: Daniela, what's what's your take? And this is not just a matter of, of global justice, though that should be enough, though it never has been. It's just a matter of the raw economics of doing a green energy transition at the global scale that it has to happen, because if the global South is not provided with an economically viable path to do green development, why would they stop burning coal?
1: Yeah, I, I think where where I find the... The progressive rhetorics of the Biden administration at its thinnest it's, is in this rhetoric of a new Washington consensus for the countries in the global south. And behind that, uh, I, I find uh, what we had on, on your show before, Dan, uh, this idea of the Wall Street consensus is very much hardwired in there. And the idea that what the global south countries need is basically To mobilize private finance in this kind of from billions to trillions agenda that Ted referred to earlier, this idea that you blend a little bit of public money with a lot of private finance and all of a sudden you get uh, investment uh, in all sorts of, uh, both in the energy transition, but in all sorts of public goods. So the same logic of de-risking has been there in the Wall Street consensus well be, before the Biden administration or Bidenomics. And it hasn't changed at all, in my view. I don't see any change. And and I think if you see the rhetorics, for example, I looked at Brian Deese who used to be the architect or is, is viewed as one of the architects of Bidenomics, and, and his idea is that, and his uh, the, his rhetoric is that, isn't it great that uh, our massive tax credits and massive de-risking for green hydrogen, for example, will make, uh, will, will constitute will turn into cheaper energy technologies for countries in the global south. But we have to remember that countries in the global south, during their developmental stage, and even now, looking at the rhetorics of industrial policy in the global north, they don't want to become consumer of cheap clean tech. They they can already do that with China, and this is one of the greatest ironies that I see: is that the US is protesting the fact that uh, they are a, a cheap a consumer of cheap um, renewable uh, clean or cheap clean tech from the, from China, but and and that's not okay. That requires a whole geopolitical reordering. But the countries in the global south should be happy with this uh, state fact. The the logic there is these are export markets. Uh, these are markets also that have to be a, as much as possible delinked linked from, from China and the Belt and Road kind of initiative. And we will not do anything different, but just um, scale up the rhetoric of this is better for you. I, I, I don't see much significant institutional change the biden administration is not supporting a mandatory involvement of private creditors in in the in the debt ridden countries in the global south at all not not that i have seen the biden administration is not pushing for more grants or for more concessional finance to go into public goods and the biden administration so far i have not seen talking about technology transfers in a way that china did technology transfers i i keep using this example of this ugandan state owned company that was going to produce and has, has started to produce. I don't know how much it scaled up, but has started to produce electric buses for public transport with Chinese technology. Now this is what, what technology transfer looks like in a Washington, in a, in a revamped post-neoliberal post-trickle-down economics one that, where that says we need manufacturing capacity and we need institutional capacity and state capacity for strategic industrial upgrading for countries in the global south. This does not exist in in, in the Biden administration, uh, actual policies towards the Global South. Uh, everything in there, if you look closely, is based on, on the risking. So I, I don't think there is much at stake there except for green extractivism. Uh, of uh, and, and even there, I'm not sure, because how is a, a green hydrogen project in Namibia going to compete with the massive subsidies in green hydrogen that the Biden administration is offering? Even the Europeans, the Europeans are now threatening to, uh, with a, with retaliation through the WTO, because the, the set of, of carrots for green hydrogen through the U.S. IRA are going to reduce the cost of production to two U.S. dollars per kilo, as I understand. If that if, if those are those costs of production, I don't know who can compete on on green hydrogen except China. So I don't see much, much, much promise in this empty rhetoric of the new Washington consensus.
3: Ted, the, the only thing I would say, and Tim has written about this uh, somewhat extensively. I wrote an entire dissertation about a a similar dynamic that played out in the world in the 1930s. But to the extent that things do change or will change, it seems to me likely driven by geopolitical uh, developments much more than any uh, enlightenment on the part of uh, the U.S. governing or financial uh, apparatus. I mean, the politics of foreign aid, just to put a really broad term on it, are are difficult under the best of circumstances. But, um, you know, I think what you've seen in some of the packages that have been negotiated, for example, with Indonesia, they do involve aspects of technology transfer, but it but it's it's coerced, right? Um, The, the U.S. Is, is making concessions to the extent that they are uh, because they are seeking uh, the geopolitical alignment of uh, certain well-positioned or strategically positioned uh, states. And we're likely to see, uh, as we saw in the Cold War, to some extent we saw even in the 1930s, right, a, a, a sort of geopolitical gradient uh, of the favorability or unfavorability of Deals for uh, relating to international development finance, technology transfer, whatever, uh, where states that have the capacity uh, and the leverage and the positioning to be able to draw down uh, greater amounts of resources, technical know-how, etc., uh, will will succeed in doing so. The double-edged sword quality of that is that it is all feeding into the escalatory dynamics that you know that we are seeing in in, in the world economy and, and in geopolit- in geopolitics. So it's a very it's hard to know how one should feel about it ethically. On the one hand, uh, you know, credit to any state that can negotiate better terms and do more for its own development. But we should all be fearful uh, of the dynamic whereby um, there's a there's a competitive sort of tit for tat aspect to that of that, which is which is all about buying geostrategic alignment for an ultimate confrontation.
0: Well, Daniela Gabor, Ted Furtick and Tim Sahai, thank you all very, very much.
2: Thank you. Thank you.
0: Daniela Gabor is Professor of Economics and Macrofinance at University of the West of England, Bristol. She studies development, money, and debt through a critical macrofinance lens. Ted Furtick is a historian and the senior strategist for policy and research at the Working Families Party. All opinions expressed are his own. Tim Sahai is the editor of The Poly Crisis, a publication in partnership with Phenomenal World, focusing on the domestic and international political economy of climate. Thank you for listening to The Dig from Jacobin Magazine. As Marx once said, after noting that, things are only settled by the continuous struggle between capital and labor, the capitalist constantly tending to reduce wages to their physical minimum and to extend the working day to its physical maximum, while the working man constantly presses in the opposite direction. While other podcasts have only interpreted the world in various ways, our point is to change it. We're posting new episodes every week. The Dig was produced by Alex Lewis. Our associate producer is Jackson Roach. We are recorded at WBRU in Providence. Music by Jeffrey Brodsky. Our communications coordinators are Tamoose Frankel and Sylvia Atwood. Our senior advisors are Thea Francos and Ben Maybe. Check out our vast archives at thedigradio.com. Follow us on Twitter at TheDigRadio, and please find us wherever you get podcasts, and subscribe to this podcast. If it is on iTunes, you can also leave us a nice review. Those reviews help introduce us to new listeners. But what really does that is spreading the word to your friends. Please make propaganda for us. And please do find us at patreon.com and make a monthly contribution to keep this operation up and running strong. Even a few bucks a month is huge.